Chapter Fifty One of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty One. Enlightened. When Mr. Woodcourt arrived in London, he went that very same day to Mr. Vols's in Simon's Inn for he never once, from the moment when I entreated him to be a friend to Richard, neglected or forgot his promise. He had told me that he accepted the charge as a sacred trust, and he was ever true to it in that spirit. He found Mr. Vols in his office, and informed Mr. Vols of his agreement with Richard that he should call there to learn his address. "'Just so, sir,' said Mr. Vols. "'Mr. C.'s address is not a hundred miles from here, sir. "'Mr. C.'s address is not a hundred miles from here. "'Would you take a seat, sir?' Mr. Woodcourt thanked Mr. Vols, but he had no business with him beyond what he had mentioned. "'Just so, sir. I believe, sir,' said Mr. Vols, still quietly insisting on the seat by not giving the address. "'That you have influence with Mr. C.' "'Indeed, I am aware that you have.' "'I was not aware of it myself,' returned Mr. Woodcourt. "'But I suppose you know best.' "'Sir,' rejoined Mr. Vols, self-contained as usual, voice and all, "'it is part of my professional duty to know best. "'It is a part of my professional duty to study and to understand a gentleman who confides his interests to me.' "'In my professional duty I shall not be wanting, sir, if I know it. "'I may, with the best intentions, be wanting in it, without knowing it, "'but not if I know it, sir.' Mr. Woodcourt again mentioned the address. "'Give me leave, sir,' said Mr. Vols. "'Bear with me for a moment, sir. "'Mr. C. is playing for a considerable stake, and cannot play without.' "'Need I say what?' "'Money, I presume?' "'Sir,' said Mr. Vols, "'to be honest with you, honesty being my golden rule, whether I gain by it or lose, and I find that I generally lose, money is the word. Now, sir, upon the chances of Mr. C.'s game I express to you no opinion.' "'No opinion. It might be highly impolitic in Mr. C., after playing so long and so high, to leave off. It might be the reverse. I say nothing. No, sir,' said Mr. Vols, bringing his hand flat down upon his desk in a positive manner. "'Nothing.' "'You seem to forget,' returned Mr. Woodcourt, "'that I ask you to say nothing, and have no interest in anything you say.' "'Pardon me, sir,' retorted Mr. Vols. "'You do yourself an injustice. "'No, sir, pardon me. "'You shall not, shall not in my office, if I know it, "'do yourself an injustice. "'You are interested in anything, and in everything, "'that relates to your friend. "'I know human nature much better, sir, "'than to admit for an instant "'that a gentleman of your appearance "'is not interested in whatever concerns his friend.' "'Well,' replied Mr. Woodcourt, "'that may be. "'I am particularly interested in his address.' "'The number, sir,' 
said Mr. Vowles parenthetically, "'I believe I have already mentioned. If Mr. C. is to continue to play for this considerable stake, sir, he must have funds. Understand me, there are funds in hand at present. I ask for nothing. There are funds in hand. But for the onward play, more funds must be provided, unless Mr. C. is to throw away what he has already ventured, which is wholly and solely a point for his consideration.' this sir i take the opportunity of stating openly to you as the friend of mr c without funds i shall always be happy to appear and act for mr c to the extent of all such costs as are safe to be allowed out of the estate not beyond that i could not go beyond that sir without wronging some one i must either wrong my three dear girls or my venerable father who is entirely dependent on me in the vale of taunton or some one whereas sir my resolution is call it weakness or folly if you please to wrong no one mr woodcourt rather sternly rejoined that he was glad to hear it i wish sir said mr vholes to leave a good name behind me therefore i take every opportunity of openly stating to a friend of mr c how mr c is situated as to myself sir the labourer is worthy of his hire if i undertake to put my shoulder to the wheel i do it and i earn what i get i am here for that purpose my name is painted on the door outside with that object and mr carstone's address mr vholes sir returned mr vholes as i believe i have already mentioned it is next door on the second story you will find mr c's apartments mr c desires to be near his professional adviser and i am far from rejecting for i court inquiry upon this mr woodcourt wished mr vholes good day and went in search of richard the change in whose appearance he began to understand now but too well he found him in a dull room "'Fadedly furnished, much as I had found him in his barrack-room, but a little while before, "'except that he was not writing, but was sitting with a book before him, "'from which his eyes and thoughts were far astray. "'As the door chanced to be standing open, Mr. Woodcourt was in his presence for some moments, "'without being perceived, and he told me that he never could forget the haggardness of his face, "'and the dejection of his manner, before he was aroused from his dream.' "'Woodcourt, my dear fellow,' cried Richard, starting up with extended hands, "'you come upon my vision like a ghost.' "'A friendly one,' he replied, "'and only waiting, as they say ghosts do, to be addressed. How does the mortal world go?' They were seated now, near together. "'Badly enough, and slowly enough,' said Richard, "'Speaking, at least, for my part of it. "'What part is that?' "'The chancery part.' "'I never heard,' returned Mr. Woodcourt, shaking his head, "'of its going well yet.' "'Nor I,' said Richard moodily. "'Who ever did?' He brightened again in a moment, and said with his natural openness, "'Woodcourt, I shall be very sorry to be misunderstood by you.' even if i gained by it in your estimation you must know that i have done no good this long time i have not intended to do much harm but i seem to have been capable of nothing else it may be that i should have done better 
by keeping out of the net into which my destiny has worked me. But I think not, though I dare say you will soon hear, if you have not already heard, a very different opinion. To make short of a long story, I am afraid I have wanted an object, but I have an object now, or it has me, and it is too late to discuss it. Take me as I am, and make the best of me. "'A bargain,' said Mr. Woodcourt. "'Do as much by me in return.' "'Oh, you,' returned Richard, "'you can pursue your art for its own sake, "'and can put your hand upon the plough and never turn, "'and can strike a purpose out of anything. "'You and I are very different creatures.' He spoke regretfully, and lapsed for a moment into his weary condition. "'Ah, well, well,' he cried, shaking it off. "'Everything has an end. We shall see. So you will take me as I am, and make the best of me.' I <laughs> indeed I will.' They shook hands upon it laughingly, but in deep earnestness. I can answer for one of them with my heart of hearts. "'You come as a godsend,' said Richard, "'for I have seen nobody here yet but Voles.' Woodcourt, there is one subject I should like to mention, for once and for all, in the beginning of our treaty. You can hardly make the best of me if I don't. You know, I dare say, that I have an attachment to my cousin Ada. Mr. Woodcourt replied that I had hinted as much to him. Now, pray, returned Richard, don't think me a heap of selfishness. Don't suppose that I am splitting my head and half-breaking my heart over this miserable chancery suit for my own rights and interests alone. Ada's are bound up with mine, and they can't be separated. Vole's works for both of us. Do think of that. He was so very solicitous on this head that Mr. Woodcourt gave him the strongest assurances that he did him no injustice. You see, said Richard, with something pathetic in his manner of lingering on the point, though it was off-hand and unstudied. To an upright fellow like you, bringing a friendly face like yours here, I cannot bear the thought of appearing selfish and mean. I want to see Ada righted, Woodcourt, as well as myself. I want to do my utmost to right her, as well as myself. I venture what I can scrape together to extricate her, as well as myself. Do, I beseech you, think of that." Afterwards, when Mr. Woodcourt came to reflect on what had passed, he was so very much impressed by the strength of Richard's anxiety on this point, that in telling me generally of his first visit to Simon's Inn, he particularly dwelt upon it. It revived a fear I had had before, that my dear girl's little property would be absorbed by Mr. Vole's, and that Richard's justification to himself would be sincerely this. It was just as I began to take care of Caddy that the interview took place, and I now returned to the time when Caddy had recovered, and the shade was still between me and my darling. I proposed to Ada that morning that we should go and see Richard. It a little surprised me to find that she hesitated, and was not so radiantly willing as I had expected. "'My dear,' said I, "'you have not had any difference with Richard since I have been so much away?' "'No, Esther.' "'Not heard of him, perhaps,' said I. "'Yes, 
"'I have heard of him,' said Ada. "'Such tears in her eyes, and such love in her face, I could not make my darling out. "'Should I go to Richard's by myself?' I said. "'No, Ada thought I had better not go by myself. "'Would she go with me? "'Yes, Ada thought she had better go with me. "'Should we go now?' "'Yes, let us go now.' "'Well, I could not understand my darling, with the tears in her eyes and the love in her face.' We were soon equipped and went out. It was a sombre day, and drops of chill rain fell at intervals. It was one of those colourless days when everything looks heavy and harsh. The houses frowned at us, the dust rose at us, the smoke swooped at us. Nothing made any compromise about itself or wore a softened aspect. I fancied my beautiful girl quite out of place in the rugged streets, and I thought there were more funerals passing along the dismal pavements than I had ever seen before. We had first to find out Simon's Inn. We were going to inquire in a shop when Ada said she thought it was near Chancery Lane. "'We are not likely to be far out, my love, if we go in that direction,' said I. So to Chancery Lane we went, and there, sure enough, we saw it written up, Simon's Inn. We had next to find out the number. Or oh, Mr. Vowles's office will do, I recollected, for Mr. Vowles's office is next door. Upon which Ada said, perhaps that was Mr. Vowles's office in the corner there. And it really was. Then came the question, which of the two next doors? I was going for one, and my darling was going for the other, and my darling was right again. So up we went to the second story, when we came to Richard's name in great white letters on a hearse-like panel. I should have knocked, but Ada said perhaps we had better turn the handle and go in. Thus we came to Richard, poring over a table, covered with dusty bundles of papers, which seemed to me like dusty mirrors, reflecting his own mind. Wherever I looked, I saw the ominous words that ran in it repeated, Jarndyce and John Dice. He received us very affectionately, and we sat down. "'If you had come a little earlier,' he said, "'you would have found Woodcourt here. There never was such a good fellow as Woodcourt is. He finds time to look in between whiles, when anybody else with half his work to do would be thinking about not being able to come. And he is so cheery, so fresh, so sensible, so earnest, so— "'Everything that I am not, that the place brightens whenever he comes, and darkens whenever he goes again.' "'God bless him,' I thought, for his truth to me. "'He is not so sanguine, Ada,' continued Richard, casting his dejected look over the bundles of papers, "'as Voles and I are usually. But he is only an outsider, and is not in the mysteries. We have gone into them, and he has not.' He can't be expected to know much of such a labyrinth. As his look wandered over the papers again, and he passed his two hands over his head, I noticed how sunken and how large his eyes appeared, how dry his lips were, and how his fingernails were all bitten away. "'Is this a healthy place to live in, Richard, do you think?' said I. "'Why, my dear Minerva!' answered Richard, with his old gay laugh. 
"'It is neither a rural nor a cheerful place, "'and when the sun shines here you may lay a pretty heavy wager "'that it is shining brightly in an open spot. "'But it's well enough for the time. "'It's near the offices and near Vols.' "'Perhaps,' I hinted, "'a change from both?' "'Might do me good,' said Richard, "'forcing a laugh as he finished the sentence. "'I shouldn't wonder.' "'but it can only come in one way now, "'in one of two ways, I should rather say. "'Either the suit must be ended, Esther, or the suitor. "'But it shall be the suit, my dear girl. "'The suit, my dear girl.' "'These latter words were addressed to Ada, "'who was sitting nearest to him. "'Her face being turned away from me and towards him, "'I could not see it. "'We are doing very well,' pursued Richard. "'Bowles will tell you so.' "'We are really spinning along. "'Ask Voles. "'We are giving them no rest. "'Voles knows all their windings and turnings, "'and we are upon them everywhere. "'We have astonished them already. "'We shall rouse up that nest of sleepers. "'Mark my words.' "'His hopefulness had long been more painful to me "'than his despondency. "'It was so unlike hopefulness, "'had something so fierce in its determination to be it, was so hungry and eager, and yet so conscious of being forced and unsustainable, that it had long touched me to the heart. But the commentary upon it now, indelibly written in his handsome face, made it far more distressing than it used to be. I say indelibly, for I felt persuaded that if the fatal cause could have been for ever terminated, according to his brightest visions, in that same hour, the traces of the premature anxiety, self-reproach, and disappointment it had occasioned him, would have remained upon his features to the hour of his death. "'The sight of our dear little woman,' said Richard, Ada still remaining silent and quiet, "'is so natural to me, and her compassionate face is so like the face of old days.' "'Ah, no, no,' I smiled and shook my head. "'So exactly!' "'like the face of old days,' said Richard in his cordial voice, "'and taking my hand with the brotherly regard which nothing ever changed, "'that I can't make pretences with her. "'I fluctuate a little, that's the truth. "'Sometimes I hope, my dear, and sometimes I don't quite despair, but nearly. "'I get,' said Richard, relinquishing my hand gently and walking across the room. "'So—' tired. He took a few turns up and down, and sunk upon the sofa. "'I get,' he repeated gloomily, "'so tired. It is such weary, weary work.' He was leaning on his arm, saying these words, in a meditative voice, and looking at the ground, when my darling rose, put off her bonnet, kneeled down beside him, with her golden hair falling like sunlight on his head, clasped her two arms round his neck, and turned her face to me. Oh, what a loving and devoted face I saw! "'Esther, dear,' she said very quietly, "'I am not going home again.' A light shone in upon me all at once. "'Never any more.' "'I am going to stay with my dear husband. "'We have been married above two months.' 
Go home without me, my own Esther. I shall never go home any more. With these words, my darling drew his head down on her breast and held it there. And if ever in my life I saw a love that nothing but death could change, I saw it then before me. "'Speak to Esther, my dearest,' said Richard, breaking the silence presently. "'Tell her how it was.' I met her before she could come to me, and folded her in my arms. We neither of us spoke, but with her cheek against my own, I wanted to hear nothing. "'My pet,' said I, "'my love, my poor, poor girl.' I pitied her so much. I was very fond of Richard, but the impulse that I had upon me was to pity her so much. Esther, will you forgive me? Will my cousin John forgive me? My dear, said I, to doubt it for a moment is to do him a great wrong. And as to me, why, as to me, what had I to forgive? I dried my sobbing darling's eyes, and sat beside her on the sofa, and Richard sat on my other side. And while I was reminded of that so different night, when they had first taken me into their confidence, and had gone on in their own wild, happy way, they told me between them how it was. All I had was Richard's, Ada said, and Richard would not take it, Esther. And what could I do but be his wife, when I loved him dearly? And you were so fully and so kindly occupied, excellent Dame Durden, said Richard, that how could we speak to you at such a time? And besides, it was not a long-considered step. We went out one morning, and were married. And when it was done, Esther, said my darling, I was always thinking— how to tell you, and what to do for the best. And sometimes I thought you ought to know it directly, and sometimes I thought you ought not to know it, and keep it from my cousin John. And I could not tell what to do. I fretted very much. How selfish I must have been not to have thought of this before. I don't know what I said now. I was so sorry— and yet I was so fond of them, and so glad that they were fond of me. I pitied them so much, and yet I felt a kind of pride in their loving one another. I never had experienced such painful and pleasurable emotion at one time, and in my own heart I did not know which predominated. But I was not there to darken their way. I did not do that. When I was less foolish and more composed, my darling took her wedding ring from her bosom, and kissed it, and put it on. Then I remembered last night, and told Richard that ever since her marriage she had worn it at night when there was no one to see. Then Ada blushingly asked me, How did I know that, my dear? Then I told Ada how I had seen her hand concealed under her pillow, and had little thought why, my dear. Then they began telling me how it was, all over again, and I began to be sorry and glad again and foolish again, and to hide my plain old face as much as I could, lest I should put them out of heart. Thus the time went on until it became necessary for me to think of returning. When that time arrived, 
it was the worst of all, for then my darling completely broke down. She clung round my neck, calling me by every dear name she could think of, and saying what she should do without me. Nor was Richard much better. And as for me, I should have been the worst of the three, if I had not severely said to myself, "'Now, Esther, if you do, I'll never speak to you again.' "'Why, I declare,' said I, "'I never saw such a wife. I don't think she loves her husband at all. Here, Richard, take my child, for goodness' sake.' But I held her tight all the while, and could have wept over her, I don't know how long. "'I give this dear young couple notice,' said I, "'that I am only going away to come back to-morrow, "'and that I shall be always coming backwards and forwards "'until Simon's Inn is tired of the sight of me. "'So I shall not say good-bye, Richard, "'for what would be the use of that, you know, "'when I am coming back so soon?' "'I had given my darling to him now, "'and I meant to go, "'but I lingered for one more look of the precious face.' which it seemed to rive my heart to turn from. So I said, in a merry, bustling manner, that unless they gave me some encouragement to come back, I was not sure that I could take that liberty. Upon which my dear girl looked up, faintly smiling through her tears, and I folded her lovely face between my hands, and gave it one last kiss, and laughed, and ran away. And when I got downstairs, oh, how I cried! It almost seemed to me that I had lost my Ada for ever. I was so lonely and so blank without her, and it was so desolate to be going home, with no hope of seeing her there, that I could get no comfort for a little while, as I walked up and down in a dim corner, sobbing and crying. I came to myself by and by, after a little scolding, and took a coach home. The poor boy, whom I had found at St. Albans, had reappeared a short time before, and was lying at the point of death. Indeed, was then dead, though I did not know it. My guardian had gone out to inquire about him, and did not return to dinner. Being quite alone, I cried a little again, though on the whole I don't think I behaved so very, very ill. It was only natural that I should not be quite accustomed to the loss of my darling yet. Three or four hours were not a long time after years— but my mind dwelt so much upon the uncongenial scene in which I had left her, and I pictured it as such an overshadowed, stony-hearted one, and I so longed to be near her and taking some sort of care of her, that I determined to go back in the evening, only to look up at her windows. It was foolish, I dare say, but it did not then seem at all so to me, and it does not seem quite so even now. I took Charlie into my confidence— and we went out at dusk. It was dark when we came to the new strange home of my dear girl, and there was a light behind the yellow blinds. We walked past cautiously, three or four times, looking up, and narrowly missed encountering Mr. Vowles, who came out of his office while we were there, and turned his head to look up too, before going home. The sight of his lank, black figure, and the lonesome air of that nook in the dark, were favourable to the state of my mind. I thought of the youth and love and beauty of my dear girl, shut up in such an ill-assorted refuge, almost as if it were a cruel place. It was very solitary and very dull, and I did not doubt that I might safely steal upstairs. I left Charlie below, 
and went up with a light foot, not distressed by any glare from the feeble oil-lanterns on the way. I listened for a few moments, and in the musty, rotting silence of the house believed that I could hear the murmur of their young voices. I put my lips to the hearse-like panel of the door, as a kiss for my dear, and came quietly down again, thinking that one of these days I would confess to the visit. And it really did me good, for though nobody but Charlie and I knew anything about it, I somehow felt as if it had diminished the separation between Ada and me, and had brought us together again for those moments. I went back, not quite accustomed yet to the change, but all the better for that hovering about my darling. My guardian had come home, and was standing thoughtfully by the dark window. When I went in, his face cleared, and he came to his seat, but he caught the light upon my face as I took mine. "'Little woman,' said he, "'you have been crying?' "'Why, yes, guardian,' said I. "'I'm afraid I have been a little. Ada has been in such distress, and is so very sorry, guardian.' I put my arm in the back of his chair, and I saw in his glance that my words, and my look at her empty place, had prepared him. "'Is she married, my dear?' I told him all about it, and how her first entreaties had referred to his forgiveness. "'She has no need of it,' said he. "'Heaven bless her and her husband.' but just as my first impulse had been to pity her, so was his. Poor girl! Poor girl! Poor Rick! Poor Ada! Neither of us spoke after that, until he said with a sigh, Hey, well, well, my dear, Bleak House is thinning fast. "'But its mistress remains, guardian,' though I was timid about saying it, I ventured because of the sorrowful tone in which he had spoken. "'She will do all she can to make it happy,' said I. "'She will succeed, my love.' The letter had made no difference between us, except that the seat by her side had come to be mine. It made none now. He turned his old bright fatherly look upon me, laid his hand on my hand, in his old way, and said again, "'She will succeed, my dear. Nevertheless, Bleak House is thinning fast. Oh, little woman!' I was sorry, presently, that this was all we said about that. I was rather disappointed. I feared I might not quite have been all I had meant to be, since the letter and the answer. End of chapter 51「Chapter 52 of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 52. Obstinacy. 
but one other day had intervened when, early in the morning, as we were going to breakfast, Mr. Woodcourt came in haste with the astounding news that a terrible murder had been committed for which Mr. George had been apprehended and was in custody. When he told us that a large reward was offered by Sir Lester Dedlock for the murderer's apprehension, I did not, in my first consternation, understand why, but a few more words explained to me that the murdered person was Sir Lester's lawyer, and immediately my mother's dread of him rushed into my remembrance. This unforeseen and violent removal of one whom she had long watched and distrusted, and who had long watched and distrusted her, one for whom she could have had few intervals of kindness, always dreading in him a dangerous and secret enemy, appeared so awful that my first thoughts were of her. How appalling to hear of such a death! and be able to feel no pity. How dreadful to remember, perhaps, that she had sometimes even wished the old man away, who was so swiftly hurried out of life. Such crowding reflections, increasing the distress and fear I always felt when the name was mentioned, made me so agitated that I could scarcely hold my place at the table. I was quite unable to follow the conversation, until I had had a little time to recover. But when I came to myself, and saw how shocked my guardian was, and found that they were earnestly speaking of the suspected man, and recalling every favourable impression we had formed of him out of the good we had known of him, my interest and my fears were so strongly aroused in his behalf that I was quite set up again. Guardian, you don't think it possible that he is justly accused? My dear, I can't think so. This man— whom we have seen so open-hearted and compassionate, who, with the might of a giant, has the gentleness of a child, who looks as brave a fellow as ever lived, and is so simple and quiet with it, this man justly accused for such a crime? I can't believe it. it it's not that I don't, or I won't. I can't. And I can't, said Mr. Woodcourt, still, Whatever we believe or know of him, we had better not forget that some appearances are against him. He bore an animosity towards the deceased gentleman. He has openly mentioned it in many places. He is said to have expressed himself violently towards him, and he certainly did about him to my knowledge. He admits that he was alone on the scene of the murder within a few minutes of its commission. I sincerely believe him to be as innocent of any participation in it as I am. But these are all reasons for suspicion falling upon him. "'True,' said my guardian, and he added, turning to me, "'It would be doing him a very bad service, my dear, to shut our eyes to the truth in any of these respects.' I felt, of course, that we must admit, not only to ourselves but to others, the full force of the circumstances against him. Yet I knew withal, I could not help saying, that their weight would not induce us to desert him in his need. "'Heaven forbid,' returned my guardian, "'we will stand by him, as he himself stood by the two poor creatures who are gone.' He meant Mr. Gridley and the boy, to both of whom Mr. George had given shelter. Mr. Woodcourt then told us, that the trooper's man had been with him before day, after wandering about the streets all night like a distracted creature, that one of the trooper's first anxieties was that we should not suppose him guilty, 
that he had charged his messenger to represent his perfect innocence with every solemn assurance he could send us that mr woodcourt had only quieted the man by undertaking to come to our house very early in the morning with these representations he added that he was now upon his way to see the prisoner himself my guardian said directly he would go too now besides that i liked the retired soldier very much and that he liked me i had that secret interest in what had happened which was only known to my guardian i felt as if it came close and near to me it seemed to become personally important to myself that the truth should be discovered and that no innocent people should be suspected for suspicion once run wild might run wilder in a word i felt as if it were my duty and obligation to go with them my guardian did not seek to dissuade me and i went it was a large prison with many courts and passages so like one another and so uniformly paved that i seemed to gain a new comprehension as i passed along of the fondness that solitary prisoners shut up among the same staring walls from year to year have had as i have read for a weed or a stray blade of glass in an arched room by himself like a cellar upstairs with walls so glaringly white that they made the massive iron window-bars and iron-bound door even more profoundly black than they were, we found the trooper standing in a corner. He had been sitting on a bench there, and had risen when he heard the locks and bolts turn. When he saw us, he came forward a step with his usual heavy tread, and there stopped and made a slight bow. But as I still advanced, putting out my hand to him, he understood us in a moment. "'This is a load off my mind, I do assure you, miss and gentlemen,' said he, saluting us with great heartiness, and drawing a long breath. "'And now I don't so much care how it ends.' He scarcely seemed to be the prisoner. What with his coolness and his soldierly bearing, he looked far more like the prison guard. "'This is even a rougher place than my gallery to receive a lady in.' said Mr. George, but I know Mr. Musson will make the best of it. As he handed me to the bench on which he had been sitting, I sat down, which seemed to give him great satisfaction. "'I thank you, miss,' said he. "'Now, George,' observed my guardian, "'as we require no new assurances on your part, so I believe we need to give you none on ours.' "'Not at all, sir.' I thank you with all my heart. If I was not innocent of this crime, I couldn't look at you, and keep my secret to myself, under the condescension of the present visit. I feel the present visit very much. I am not one of the eloquent sort, but I feel it, Miss Summerson, and gentlemen, deeply." He laid his hand for a moment on his broad chest, and bent his head to us. Although he squared himself again directly, he expressed a great amount of natural emotion by these simple means. First, said my guardian, "'can we do anything for your personal comfort, George?' "'For which, sir?' he inquired, clearing his throat. "'For your personal comfort. Is there anything you want that would lessen the hardship of this confinement?' "'Well, sir,' replied George, after a little cogitation, "'I am equally obliged to you, but tobacco being against the rules, I can't say that there is. 
you will think of many little things perhaps by and by whenever you do george let us know thank you sir howsoever observed mr george with one of his sunburnt smiles a man who has been knocking about the world in a vagabond kind of a way as long as i have gets on well enough in a place like the present so far as that goes next as to your case observed my guardian exactly so sir returned mr george folding his arms upon his breast with perfect self-possession and a little curiosity how does it stand now why sir it is under remand at present bucket gives me to understand that you will probably apply for a series of remands from time to time until the case is more complete how it is to be made more complete i don't myself see but i dare say bucket will manage it somehow why heaven save us man exclaimed my guardian surprised into his old oddity and vehemence you talk of yourself as if you were somebody else oh no offence sir said mr george i'm very sensible of your kindness but i don't see how an innocent man is to make up his mind to this kind of thing without knocking his head against the walls unless he takes it in that point of view that is true enough to a certain extent returned my guardian softened but my good fellow even an innocent man must take ordinary precautions to defend himself certainly sir and i have done so i have stated to the magistrates gentlemen i am as innocent of this charge as yourselves what has been stated against me in the way of facts is perfectly true i know no more about it i intend to continue stating that sir what more can i do it's the truth but the mere truth won't do rejoined my guardian won't it indeed sir eh, rather a bad look-out for me mr george good-humouredly observed you must have a lawyer pursued my guardian we must engage a good one for you i ask your pardon sir said mr george with a step backward i'm equally obliged but i must decidedly beg to be excused from anything of that sort you won't have a lawyer no sir mr george shook his head in the most emphatic manner i thank you all the same sir but no lawyer why not i don't take kindly to the breed said mr george gridley didn't and if you'll excuse my saying so much i should hardly have thought you did yourself sir that's equity my guardian explained a little at a loss that's equity george is it indeed sir returned the trooper in his off-hand manner i am not acquainted with those shades of names myself but in a general way i object to the breed unfolding his arms and changing his position he stood with one massive hand upon the table and the other on his hip as complete a picture of a man who was not to be moved from a fixed purpose as ever i saw it was in vain that we all three talked to him and endeavoured to persuade him he listened with that gentleness which went so well with his bluff bearing but was evidently no more shaken by our representations than his place of confinement was pray 
"'Think once more, Mr. George,' said I. "'Have you no wish in reference to your case?' "'I certainly could wish it to be tried, miss,' he returned. "'By court-martial. But that is out of the question, as I am well aware. If you will be so good as to favour me with your attention for a couple of minutes, miss, not more, I'll endeavour to explain myself as clearly as I can.' He looked at us all three in turn shook his head a little, as if he were adjusting it in the stock and collar of a tight uniform, and after a moment's reflection, went on. "'You see, miss, I've been handcuffed, and taken into custody, and brought here. I am marked, and disgraced man. And here I am. My shooting gallery is rummaged, high and low, by bucket. Such property as I have, tis small.' is turned this way and that, till it don't know itself. And, as aforesaid, here I am. I don't particularly complain of that, though I am, in these present quarters, through no immediately preceding fault of mine, I can very well understand that if I hadn't gone into the vagabond way in my youth, this wouldn't have happened. It has happened. Then comes the question, how to meet it. He rubbed his swarthy forehead for a moment, with a good-humoured look, and said apologetically, "'I'm such a short-winded talker that I must think of it.' Having thought of it, he looked up again, and resumed. "'How to meet it. Now, the unfortunate deceased was himself a lawyer, and had a pretty tight hold of me. I don't wish to rake up his ashes, but he had, what I should call, if he was living, a devil of a tight hold of me. I don't like his trade.' the better for that. If I had kept clear of his trade, I should have kept outside this place. But that's not what I mean. Now, suppose I had killed him. Suppose I really had discharged into his body any one of those pistols recently fired off that Bucket has found at my place, and dear me, might have found there any day, since it has been my place. What should I have done? Soon as I was hard and fast here, got a lawyer, he stopped on hearing someone at the locks and bolts, and did not resume until the door had been opened and was shut again. For what purpose opened, I will mention presently. "'I should have got a lawyer, and he would have said, as I have often read in the newspapers, "'My client says nothing, my client reserves his defence, my client this, that, and t'other.' "'Well, tis not the custom of that breed to go straight, according to my opinion.' or to think that other men do. Say I am innocent, and I get a lawyer. He would be as likely to believe me guilty as not, perhaps more. What would he do? Whether or not? Act as if I was. Shut up my mouth, tell me not to commit myself, keep circumstances back, chop the evidence small, quibble, and get me off, perhaps. But, Miss Summerson, do I care for getting off in that way? or would I rather be hanged in my own way, if you'll excuse my mentioning anything so disagreeable to a lady. He had warmed into his subject now, and was under no further necessity to wait a bit. I would rather be hanged in my own way, and I mean to be. I don't intend to say— Looking round upon us with his powerful arms akimbo and his dark eyebrows raised, that I am more partial to being hanged than another man. What I say is— I must come off clear and full, or not at all. Therefore, 
when I hear stated against me what is true, I say it's true. And when they tell me whatever you say will be used, I tell them I don't mind that. I mean it to be used. If they can't make me innocent out of the old truth, they're not likely to do it out of anything less, or anything else. And if they are, it's worth nothing to me. Taking a pace or two over the stone floor, he came back to the table and finished what he had to say. "'I oh, thank you, miss, and gentlemen, both. Many times for your attention, and many times more for your interest. That's the plain state of the matter, as it points itself out to a mere trooper with a blunt broadsword kind of a mind. I've never done well in life, beyond my duty as a soldier, and if the worst comes after all, I shall reap pretty much as I have sown. When I got over the first crash, of being seized as a murderer, it don't take a rover, who has knocked about so much as myself, so very long to recover from a crash. I'll work my way round to what you find me now. As such, I shall remain. No relations will be disgraced by me, or made unhappy for me, and—and and that's all I've got to say." The door had been opened to admit another soldier-looking man, of less prepossessing appearance at first sight, and a weather-tanned, bright-eyed, wholesome woman with a basket, who, from her entrance, had been exceedingly attentive to all Mr. George had said. Mr. George had received them with a familiar nod and a friendly look, but without any more particular greeting in the midst of his address. He now shook them cordially by the hand, and said, "'Miss Summerson and gentlemen, this is an old comrade of mine, Matthew Bagnet, and this is his wife, Mrs. Bagnet.' Mr. Bagnet made us a stiff military bow, and Mrs. Bagnet dropped us a curtsy. "'Real good friends of mine they are,' said Mr. George. "'It was at their house I was taken.' "'With a second-hand wail and cheller,' Mr. Bagnet put in, twitching his head angrily, "'of a good tune for a friend that money was no object to.' "'Matt,' said Mr. George, "'You have heard pretty well all I have been saying to this lady and these two gentlemen. I know it meets your approval.' Mr. Bagnet, after considering, referred the point to his wife. "'Old girl,' said he, "'tell him whether or not it meets my approval.' "'Why, George!' exclaimed Mrs. Bagnet, who had been unpacking her basket, in which there was a piece of cold pickled pork, a little tea and sugar, and a brown loaf. "'You ought to know it, don't. You ought to know it enough to drive a person wild to hear you. You won't be got off this way, and you won't be got off that way. What do you mean by such picking and choosing? It's stuff and nonsense, George.' "'Don't be severe upon me and my misfortunes, Mrs. Bagnet,' said the trooper lightly. "'Oh, bother your misfortunes,' cried Mrs. Bagnet. "'If they don't make you more reasonable than that comes to—' I never was so ashamed in my life to hear a man talk folly, as I have been to hear you talk this day to the present company. Lawyers? Why, what but too many crooks should hinder you from having a dozen lawyers if the gentlemen recommend them to you? This is a very sensible woman, said my guardian. I hope you will persuade him, Mrs. Bagnet. Persuade him, sir, she returned. Lord bless you, no. You don't know George. "'Now there,' Mrs. Bagnet left her basket to point him out with both her bare brown hands, "'there he stands, as self-willed 
and as determined a man in the wrong way as ever put a human creature under heaven out of patience. You could as soon take up and shoulder an eight-and-forty-pounder by your own strength as turn that man when he has got a thing into his head and fixed it there. Why, don't I know him? cried Mrs. Bagnet. Don't I know you, George? You don't mean to set up for a new character with me after all these years, I hope. Her friendly indignation had an exemplary effect upon her husband, who shook his head at the trooper several times as a silent recommendation to him to yield. Between whiles Mrs. Bagnet looked at me, and I understood from the play of her eyes that she wished me to do something, though I did not comprehend what. But I've given up talking to you, old fellow, years and years, said Mrs. Bagnet, as she blew a little dust off the pickled pork, looking at me again. And when ladies and gentlemen know you as well as I do, they'll give up talking to you too. If you are not too headstrong to accept a bit of dinner, here it is. I accept it with many thanks, returned the trooper. Do you, though, indeed? said Mrs. Bagnet, continuing to grumble on good-humouredly. I'm sure I'm surprised at that. I wonder you don't starve in your own way also. It will only be like you. Perhaps you'll set your mind upon that next. Here she again looked at me, and I now perceived from her glances at the door and at me, by turns, that she wished us to retire and to await her, following us outside the prison. Communicating this by similar means to my guardian and Mr. Woodcourt, I rose. "'We hope you'll think better of it, Mr. George,' said I, "'and we shall come to see you again, trusting to find you more reasonable.' "'More grateful, Miss Summerson. You can't find me,' he returned. "'But more persuadable we can, I hope,' said I, "'and let me entreat you to consider that the clearing up of this mystery, and the discovery of the real perpetrator of this deed, may be of the last importance to others besides yourself.' He heard me respectfully, but without much heeding these words, which I spoke a little turned from him, already on my way to the door. He was observing, this they afterwards told me, my height and figure, which seemed to catch his attention all at once. "'Tis curious,' said he. "'And yet I thought so at the time.' My guardian asked him what he meant. "'Why, sir?' he answered. "'When my—' ill-fortune took me to the dead man's staircase on the night of his murder, I saw a shape so like Miss Summerson's go by me in the dark that I had half a mind to speak to it. For an instant I felt such a shudder as I never felt before or since, and hope I shall never feel again. It came downstairs as I went up, said the trooper, and crossed the moonlighted window with a loose black mantle on. I noticed a deep fringe to it. However, it is nothing to do with the present subject, excepting that Miss Summerson looked so like it at the moment that it came into my head. I cannot separate and define the feelings that arose in me after this. It is enough that the vague duty and obligation I had felt upon me from the first of following the investigation was, without my distinctly daring to ask myself any question, increased and that I was indignantly sure of there being no possibility of a reason for my being afraid. We three went out of the prison, and walked up and down at some short distance from the gate, which was in a retired place. We had not waited long when Mr. and Mrs. Bagnet came out too, and quickly joined us. 
There was a tear in each of Mrs. Bagnet's eyes, and her face was flushed and hurried. "'I didn't let George see what I thought about it, you know, miss,' was her first remark when she came up. "'But he's in a bad way. Poor old fellow.' "'Not with care and prudence and good help,' said my guardian. "'A gentleman like you ought to know best, sir,' returned Mrs. Bagnet, hurriedly drying her eyes on the hem of her grey cloak. "'But I'm uneasy for him.' He has been so careless, and said so much that he never meant. The gentlemen of the juries might not understand him, as Lignum and me do, and then such a number of circumstances have happened bad for him, and such a number of people will be brought forward to speak against him, and Bucket is so deep. With a second-hand violoncella, and said he played the fife when a boy. Mr. Bagnet added, with great solemnity, "'Now, I tell you, miss,' said Mrs. Bagnet, "'and when I say, miss, I, I mean all. "'Just come into the corner of the wall, and I'll tell you.' Mrs. Bagnet hurried us into a more secluded place, and was at first too breathless to proceed, occasioning Mr. Bagnet to say, "'Old girl, tell em. "'Why, then, miss,' the old girl proceeded, untying the strings of her bonnet for more air. "'You could as soon move Dover Castle as move George on this point, unless you'd got a new power to move him with. And I have got it.' "'You are a jewel of a woman,' said my guardian. "'Go on.' "'Now, I tell you, miss,' She proceeded, clapping her hands in her hurry and agitation a dozen times in every sentence, that what he says concerning no relations is all bosh. They don't know of him, but he does know of them. He has said more to me at odd times than to anybody else, and it warn't for nothing that he spoke once to my Woolwich about whitening and wrinkling mother's heads. For fifty pounds he had seen his mother that day. She's alive, and must be brought here straight. Instantly, Mrs. Bagnet put some pins into her mouth, and began pinning up her skirts all round a little higher than the level of her grey cloak, which she accomplished with surpassing dispatch and dexterity. Lignum, said Mrs. Bagnet, you take care of the children, old man, and give me the umbrella. I'm away to Lincolnshire to bring that old lady here. But, bless the woman! cried my guardian with his hand in his pocket. "'How is she going? What money has she got?' Mrs. Bagnet made another application to her skirts, and brought forth a leathern purse, in which she hastily counted over a few shillings, and which she then shut up with perfect satisfaction. "'Never you mind for me, miss. I'm a soldier's wife, and accustomed to travel my own way. Lignum, old boy,' kissing him, "'one for yourself, three for the children,' "'Now, I'm away in Lincolnshire after George's mother.' And she actually set off, while we three stood looking at one another, lost in amazement. She actually trudged away in her grey cloak, at a sturdy pace, and turned the corner, and was gone. "'Mr. Bagnet,' said my guardian, "'do you mean to let her go in that way?' "'Can't help it,' he returned. "'Made her way home once from another quarter of the world, "'with the same grey cloak and same umbrella. 
whatever the old girl says, do. Do it. Whatever the old girl says, I'll do it. She does it. Then she is as honest and genuine as she looks, rejoined my guardian, and it is impossible to say more for her. She's colour sergeant of the nonpareil battalion, said Mr. Bagnet, looking at us over his shoulder as he went his way also, and there's not such another. But I never owned to it before her. Discipline must be maintained. End of chapter 52「Chapter fifty-three The Track Mr. Bucket and his fat forefinger are much in consultation together under existing circumstances. When Mr. Bucket has a matter of this pressing interest under his consideration, the fat forefinger seems to rise to the dignity of a familiar demon. He puts it to his ears, and it whispers information. He puts it to his lips, and it enjoins him to secrecy. He rubs it over his nose, and it sharpens his scent. He shakes it before a guilty man, and it charms him to his destruction. The augurs of the detective temple invariably predict that when Mr. Bucket and that finger are in much conference— a terrible avenger will be heard of before long. Otherwise, mildly studious in his observation of human nature, on the whole a benignant philosopher not disposed to be severe upon the follies of mankind, Mr. Bucket pervades a vast number of houses, and strolls about an infinity of streets, to outward appearance rather languishing for want of an object. He is in the friendliest condition towards his species, and will drink with most of them. He is free with his money— affable in his manners, innocent in his conversation, but through the placid stream of his life there glides an undercurrent of forefinger. Time and place cannot bind Mr. Bucket. Like man in the abstract, he is here to-day, and gone to-morrow. But, very unlike man indeed, he is here again the next day. This evening he will be casually looking into the iron extinguishers at the door of Sir Lester Dedlock's house in town and to-morrow morning he will be walking on the leads at Chesney Wold, where erst the old man walked whose ghost is propitiated with a hundred guineas. Drawers, desks, pockets, all things belonging to him, Mr. Bucket examines. A few hours afterwards he and the Roman will be alone together, comparing forefingers. It is likely that these occupations are irreconcilable with home enjoyment, but it is certain that Mr. Bucket at present does not go home. Though in general he highly appreciates the society of Mrs. Bucket, a lady of a natural detective genius, which, if it had been improved by professional exercise, might have done great things, but which has paused at the level of a clever amateur. He holds himself aloof from that dear solace. Mrs. Bucket is dependent on their lodger, fortunately an amiable lady in whom she takes an interest, for companionship and conversation. A great crowd assembles in Lincoln's Inn Fields on the day of the funeral. Sir Lester Dedlock attends the ceremony in person. Strictly speaking, there are only three other human followers, that is to say, Lord Doodle, 
William Buffy, and the debilitated cousin, thrown in as a make-weight, but the amount of inconsolable carriages is immense. The peerage contributes more four-wheeled affliction than has ever been seen in that neighbourhood. Such is the assemblage of armorial bearings on coach panels that the Herald's College might be supposed to have lost its father and mother at a blow. The Duke of Foodle sends a splendid pile of dust and ashes, with silver-wheel boxes, patent axles, all the last improvements, and three bereaved worms, six feet high, holding on behind in a bunch of woe. All the state coachmen in London seem plunged into mourning, and if that dead old man of the rusty garb be not beyond a taste in horse-flesh, which appears impossible, it must be highly gratified this day. Quiet among the undertakers, and the equipages, and the calves of so many legs, all steeped in grief, Mr. Bucket sits concealed in one of the inconsolable carriages, and at his ease surveys the crowd through the lattice blinds. He has a keen eye for a crowd, as for what not, and looking here and there, now from this side of the carriage, now from the other, now up at the house-windows, now along the people's heads, nothing escapes him. "'And there you are, my partner, eh?' says Mr. Bucket to himself, apostrophizing Mrs. Bucket, stationed, by his favour, on the steps of the deceased's house. "'And so you are, and so you are, and very well indeed you're looking, Mrs. Bucket.' The procession has not yet started, but is waiting for the cause of its assemblage to be brought out. Mr. Bucket, in the foremost emblazoned carriage, uses his two fat forefingers to hold the lattice a hair's breadth open while he looks. And it says a great deal for his attachment, as a husband, that he is still occupied with Mrs. B. "'There you are, my partner, eh?' he murmuringly repeats. "'And I'll lodger with you. I'm taking notice of you, Mrs. Bucket. I hope you're all right in your health, my dear.' Not another word does Mr. Bucket say, but sits with most attentive eyes until the sacked depository of noble secrets is brought down. Where are all those secrets now? Does he keep them yet? Did they fly with him on that sudden journey? And until the procession moves, and Mr. Bucket's view is changed, after which he composes himself for an easy ride, and takes note of the fittings of the carriage, in case he should ever find such knowledge useful. Contrast enough between Mr. Tulkinghorn, shut up in his dark carriage, and Mr. Bucket shut up in his, between the immeasurable track of space, beyond the little wound that has thrown the one into the fixed sleep, which jolts so heavily over the stones of the streets, and the narrow track of blood which keeps the other in the watchful state expressed in every hair of his head. But it is all one to both. Neither is troubled about that. Mr. Bucket sits out the procession in his own easy manner, and glides from the carriage when the opportunity he has settled with himself arrives. He makes for Celeste Dedlock's, which is at present a sort of home to him, where he comes and goes as he likes at all hours, where he is always welcome and made much of, where he knows the whole establishment, and walks in an atmosphere of mysterious greatness. No knocking or ringing for Mr. Bucket— he has caused himself to be provided with a key, and can pass in at his pleasure. As he is crossing the hall, Mercury informs him, "'Here's another letter for you, Mr. Bucket, come by post,' and gives it to him. "'Another one, eh?' says Mr. Bucket. If Mercury should chance to be possessed 
by any lingering curiosity as to Mr. Bucket's letters, that wary person is not the man to gratify it. Mr. Bucket looks at him as if his face were a vista of some miles in length, and he were leisurely contemplating the same. "'Do you happen to carry a box?' says Mr. Bucket. Unfortunately, Mercury is no snuff-taker. "'Could you fetch me a pinch from anywheres?' says Mr. Bucket. "'Thank ye. It don't matter what it is. I'm not particular as to the kind. Thank ye.' Having leisurely helped himself from a canister borrowed from somebody downstairs for the purpose, and having made a considerable show of tasting it, first with one side of his nose and then with the other, Mr. Bucket, with much deliberation, pronounces it of the right sort, and goes on, letter in hand. Now, although Mr. Bucket walks upstairs to the little library, within the larger one, with the face of a man who receives some scores of letters every day, it happens that much correspondence is not incidental to his life. He is no great scribe, rather handling his pen like the pocket staff he carries about with him, always convenient to his grasp, and discourages correspondence with himself and others as being too artless and direct a way of doing delicate business. Further, he often sees damaging letters produced in evidence, and has occasion to reflect that it was a green thing to write them. For these reasons he has very little to do with letters, either as sender or receiver. And yet he has received a round half-dozen within the last twenty-four hours. "'And this,' says Mr. Bucket, spreading it out on the table, "'is in the same hand, and consists of the same two words.' "'What two words?' He turns the key in the door, ungirdles his black pocket-book, book of fate to many, lays another letter by it, and reads, boldly written in each, "'Lady Dedlock.' "'Yes, yes,' says Mr. Bucket. "'But I could have made the money without this anonymous information.' Having put the letters in his book of fate, and girdled it up again, he unlocks the door just in time to admit his dinner— which is brought upon a goodly tray with a decanter of sherry. Mr. Bucket frequently observes, in friendly circles where there is no restraint, that he likes a toothful of your fine old brown East Inder sherry better than anything you can offer him. Consequently, he fills and empties his glass with a smack of his lips, and is proceeding with his refreshment when an idea enters his mind. Mr. Bucket softly opens the door of communication between that room and the next, and looks in. The library is deserted, and the fire is sinking low. Mr. Bucket's eye, after taking a pigeon flight around the room, alights upon a table where letters are usually put as they arrive. Several letters for Sir Leicester are upon it. Mr. Bucket draws near, and examines the directions. "'No,' he says, "'there's none in that hand. It's only me as is written to. I can break it to Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet to-morrow.' With that he returns to finish his dinner with a good appetite, and after a light nap is summoned into the drawing-room. Sir Leicester has received him there these several evenings past, to know whether he has anything to report. The debilitated cousin, much exhausted by the funeral, and Volumnia are in attendance. Mr. Bucket makes three distinctly different bows to these three people. A bow of homage to Sir Leicester, a bow of gallantry to Volumnia, and a bow of recognition to the debilitated cousin, to whom it airily says, "'You are a swell about town, and you know me, and I know you.' Having distributed these little specimens of his tact, Mr. Bucket rubs his hands. 
"'Have you anything new to communicate, officer?' inquires Sir Leicester. "'Do you wish to hold any conversation with me in private?' "'Why, not to-night, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet.' "'Because my time,' pursues Sir Leicester, "'is wholly at your disposal, with a view to the vindication of the outraged majesty of the law.' Mr. Bucket coughs and glances at Volumnia, rouged and necklaced, as though he would respectfully observe, I do assure you, you're a pretty creature. I've seen hundreds worse looking at your time of life, I have indeed. The fair Volumnia, not quite unconscious, perhaps, of the humanising influence of her charms, pauses in the writing of cocked hat notes, and meditatively adjusts the pearl necklace. Mr. Bucket prices that decoration in his mind, and thinks it as likely as not that Volumnia is writing poetry. "'If I have not,' pursues Sir Leicester, "'in the most emphatic manner, adjured you, officer, to exercise your utmost skill in this atrocious case, I particularly desire to take the present opportunity of rectifying any omission I may have made.' Let no expense be a consideration. I am prepared to defray all charges. You can incur none in pursuit of the object you have undertaken that I shall hesitate for a moment to bear. Mr. Bucket made Sir Leicester's bow again as a response to this liberality. My mind, Sir Leicester adds with a generous warmth, has not, as may be easily supposed, "'recovered its tone since the late diabolical occurrence. "'It is not likely ever to recover its tone, "'but it is full of indignation to-night, "'after undergoing the ordeal of consigning to the tomb "'the remains of a faithful, zealous, a devoted adherent.' "'Sir Leicester's voice trembles, "'and his grey hair stirs upon his head. "'Tears are in his eyes. "'The best part of his nature is aroused.' "'I declare,' he says, "'I solemnly declare that until this crime is discovered and, in the course of justice, punished, I almost feel as if there were a stain upon my name. A gentleman who has devoted a large portion of his life to me, a gentleman who has devoted the last day of his life to me, a gentleman who has constantly sat at my table and slept under my roof, goes from my house to his own, and is struck down within an hour of his leaving my house. I cannot say but that he may have been followed from my house, watched at my house, even first marked because of his association with my house, which may have suggested his possessing greater wealth than being altogether of greater importance than his own retiring demeanour would have indicated. If I cannot, with my means and influence, and my position, bring all the perpetrators of such a crime to light, I fail in the assertion of my respect for that gentleman's memory, and of my fidelity towards one who was ever faithful to me. While he makes this protestation, with great emotion and earnestness, looking round the room as if he were addressing an assembly, Mr. Bucket glances at him with an observant gravity, 
in which there might be, but for the audacity of the thought, a touch of compassion. "'The ceremony of to-day,' continues Sir Leicester, "'strikingly illustrative of the respect in which my deceased friend—' He lays a stress upon the word, for death levels all distinctions. "'Was held by the flower of the land.' has, I say, aggravated the shock I have received from this most horrible and audacious crime. If it were my brother who had committed it, I would not spare him." Mr. Bucket looks very grave. Volumnia remarks of the deceased that he was the trustiest and dearest person. "'You must feel it as a deprivation to you, miss,' replies Mr. Bucket soothingly. "'No doubt. He was calculated to be a deprivation, I'm sure he was.' Volumnia gives Mr. Bucket to understand, in reply, that her sensitive mind is fully made up never to get the better of it as long as she lives, that her nerves are unstrung for ever, and that she has not the least expectation of ever smiling again. Meanwhile she folds up a cocked hat for that redoubtable old general at Bath, descriptive of her melancholy condition. "'It gives a start to a delicate female,' says Mr. Bucket sympathetically. "'But it'll wear off.' Volumnia wishes of all things to know what is doing, whether they are going to convict, or whatever it is, that dreadful soldier, whether he had any accomplices, or whatever the thing is called in the law, and a great deal more to the like artless purpose. "'Why, you see, miss,' returns Mr. Bucket, bringing the finger into persuasive action, and such is his natural gallantry that he had almost said, "'My dear!' "'It ain't easy to answer those questions at the present moment. Not at the present moment. I've kept myself on this case, Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet,' whom Mr. Bucket takes into the conversation in right of his importance, "'morning, noon, and night. But for a glass or two of sherry, I don't think I could have had my mind so much upon the stretch as it has been. I could answer your questions, miss, but duty forbids it. Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet will very soon be made acquainted with all that has been traced, and I hope that he may find it—Mr. Bucket again looks grave—to his satisfaction. The debilitated cousin only hopes some fellow'll be executed, Zample, thinks more interests wanted get man hanged present time, then get man place ten thousand a year. Hasn't a doubt, Zample, far better hang wrong Fleur than no Fleur. "'You know life, you know, sir,' says Mr. Bucket, with a complimentary twinkle of his eye and crook of his finger, "'and you can confirm what I've mentioned to this lady. You don't want to be told that from information I have received I have gone to work.' "'You're up to what a lady can't be expected to be up to. "'Lord, especially in your elevated station of society, miss,' says Mr. Bucket, quite reddening at another narrow escape from my dear. "'The officer, Volumnia,' observes Sir Leicester, "'is faithful to his duty, and perfectly right.' Mr. Bucket murmurs, "'Glad to have the honour of your approbation, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet.' "'In fact, Volumnia,' proceeds Sir Leicester, "'it is not holding up 
a good model for imitation, to ask the officer any such questions as you have put to him. He is the best judge of his own responsibility. He acts upon his responsibility. And it does not become us, who assist in making the laws, to impede or interfere with those who carry them into execution, or, says Sir Leicester, somewhat sternly, for Volumnia was going to cut in before he had rounded his sentence, or who vindicate their outraged majesty. Volumnia, with all humility, explains that she had not merely the plea of curiosity to urge, in common with the giddy youth of her sex in general, but that she is perfectly dying with regret and interest for the darling man whose loss they all deplore. "'Very well, Volumnia,' returns Sir Leicester, "'then you cannot be too discreet.' Mr. Bucket takes the opportunity of a pause to be heard again. "'Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet,' I've no objections to telling this lady, with your leave and among ourselves, that I look upon the case as pretty well complete. It is a beautiful case, a beautiful case, and what little is wanting to complete it, I expect to be able to supply in a few hours. I am very glad indeed to hear it, says Sir Leicester, highly creditable to you. "'Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet,' returns Mr. Bucket very seriously, "'I hope it may, at one and the same time, do me credit, and prove satisfactory to all. "'When I depict it as a beautiful case, you see, Miss,' Mr. Bucket goes on, glancing gravely at Sir Leicester, "'I mean, from my point of view. "'As considered from other points of view, such cases will always involve more or less unpleasantness.' "'Very strange things comes to our knowledge and families, miss. "'Bless your heart! "'What you would think to be phenomenons, quite.' "'Volumnia, with her innocent little scream, supposes so. "'Aye, and even in genteel families, "'in high families, in great families,' "'says Mr. Bucket, again gravely eyeing Sir Leicester aside. "'I have had the honour been employed in high families before, and you have no idea. Come, I'll go so far as to say not even you have any idea, sir. This to the debilitated cousin, what games goes on? The cousin, who has been casting sofa pillows on his head in a prostration of boredom yawns, they lie, being the used up for very likely. Sir Leicester, deeming it time to dismiss the officer, here majestically interposes the words, "'Very good. Thank you.' And also with a wave of his hand, implying not only that there is an end of the discourse, but that if high families fall into low habits, they must take the consequences. "'You will not forget, officer,' he adds with condescension, "'that I am at your disposal, when you please.' Mr. Bucket, still grave, inquires if to-morrow morning, now, would suit, in case he should be as forward as he expects to be. Sir Leicester replies, "'All times are alike to me.' Mr. Bucket makes his three bows, and is withdrawing when a forgotten point occurs to him. "'Might I ask, by the by,' he says in a low voice, cautiously returning, 
who posted the reward bill on the staircase i ordered it to be put up there replies sir leicester would it be considered a liberty sir leicester dedlock baronet if i was to ask you why not at all i chose it as a conspicuous part of the house i think it cannot be too prominently kept before the whole establishment i wish my people to be impressed with the enormity of the crime the determination to punish it and the hopelessness of escape at the same time officer if you and your better knowledge of the subject see any objection mr bucket sees none now the bill having been put up had better not be taken down repeating his three bows he withdraws closing the door on volumnia's little scream which is a preliminary to her remarking that that charmingly horrid person is a perfect blue chamber in his fondness for society and his adaptability to all grades mr bucket is presently standing before the hall fire bright and warm on the early winter night admiring mercury why you're six foot two i suppose says mr bucket three says mercury are you so much but then you see you're broad in proportion and don't look it you're not one of the weak-legged ones you ain't <laughs> was you ever modelled now mr bucket asks conveying the expression of an artist into the turn of his eye and head mercury never was modelled then you ought to be you know says mr bucket and a friend of mine that you'll hear of one day as a royal academy sculptor would stand something handsome to make a drawing of your proportions for the marble my lady's out ain't she out to dinner goes out pretty well every day don't she yes not to be wondered at says mr bucket such a fine woman as her so handsome and so graceful so elegant he's like a fresh lemon on a dinner table ornamental wherever she goes was your father in the same way of life as yourself answer in the negative mine was says mr bucket my father was first a page then a footman then a butler then a steward then an innkeeper lived universally respected and died lamented said with his last breath that he considered service the most honourable part of his career and so it was i've a brother in service and a brother-in-law my lady a good temper mercury replies as good as you can expect ah says mr bucket a little spoilt a little capricious lord what can you anticipate when they're so handsome as that and we like em all the better for it don't we mercury with his hands in the pockets of his bright peach-blossom small clothes stretches his symmetrical silk legs with the air of a man of gallantry and can't deny it come the roll of wheels and a violent ringing at the bell talk of angels says mr bucket here she is the doors are thrown open and she passes through the hall still very pale she is dressed in slight mourning and wears two beautiful bracelets either their beauty or the beauty of her arms is particularly attractive to mr bucket he looks at them with an eager eye and rattles something in his pocket halfpence perhaps noticing him at his distance she turns an inquiring look on the other mercury who has brought her home um, mr bucket my lady mr bucket makes a leg and comes forward passing his familiar demon over the region of his mouth are you waiting to see sir leicester no my lady i've seen him 
"'Have you anything to say to me?' "'Not just at present, my lady. "'Have you made any new discoveries?' "'A few, my lady.' "'This is merely in passing. "'She scarcely makes a stop, and sweeps upstairs alone. "'Mr. Bucket, moving towards the staircase foot, "'watches her as she goes up the steps. "'The old man came down to his grave.' past murderous groups of statuary repeated with their shadowy weapons on the wall, past the printed bill which she looks at going by out of view. "'She's a lovely woman, too, she really is,' says Mr. Bucket, coming back to Mercury. "'Don't look quite healthy, though.' "'Is not quite healthy,' Mercury informs him. "'Suffers much from headaches.' "'Really? That's a pity. "'Walking, Mr. Bucket would recommend for that.' "'Well, she tries walking,' Mercury rejoins. "'Walks sometimes for two hours when she has them bad. "'By night, too.' "'Are you sure you're quite so much as six foot three? asks Mr. Bucket, "'begging your pardon for interrupting you a moment.' "'Not a doubt about it. "'You're so well put together that I shouldn't have thought it. "'But the household troops, though considered fine men, "'are built so straggling. "'Walks by night, does she? "'When it's moonlight, though?' "'Oh, yes, when it's moonlight. Of course, oh, of course. Conversational, acquiescent, on both sides.' "'I suppose you ain't in the habit of walking yourself,' says Mr. Bucket. "'Not much time for it, I should say. Besides which, Mercury don't like it. Prefers carriage exercise.' "'To be sure,' says Mr. Bucket. "'That makes a difference. Now I think of it,' says Mr. Bucket, warming his hands and looking pleasantly at the blaze. She went out walking the very night of this business. To be sure she did. I let her into the garden over the way. And left her there. Certainly you did. I saw you doing it. I didn't see you, says Mercury. I was rather in a hurry, returns Mr. Bucket, for I was going to visit an aunt of mine that lives at Chelsea, next door but two to the old original Bunouts. Ninety-year-old, the old lady is. "'a single woman, and got a little property. "'Yes, a chance to be passing at the time. "'Let's see. "'What time might it be? "'It wasn't ten. "'Half-past nine. "'You're right. "'So it was. "'And if I don't deceive myself, "'my lady was muffled in a loose black mantle "'with a deep fringe to it. "'Of course she was. "'Of course she was.' Mr. Bucket must return to a little work he has to get on with upstairs, but he must shake hands with Mercury in acknowledgment of his agreeable conversation. And will he, this is all he asks, will he, when he has a leisure half-hour, think of bestowing it on that Royal Academy sculptor for the advantage of both parties? End of chapter 53《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《》《
Mr. Bucket lays in a breakfast of two mutton-chops as a foundation to work upon, together with tea, eggs, toast, and marmalade, on a corresponding scale. Having much enjoyed these strengthening matters, and having held subtle conference with his familiar demon, he confidently instructs Mercury, "'Just to mention quietly to Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, that whenever he's ready for me, I'm ready for him.' A gracious message being returned that Sir Lester will expedite his dressing and join Mr. Bucket in the library within ten minutes. Mr. Bucket repairs to that apartment and stands before the fire with his finger on his chin, looking at the blazing coals. Thoughtful Mr. Bucket is, as a man may be with weighty work to do, but composed, sure, confident. From the expression of his face he might be a famous whist-player for a large stake say a hundred guineas certain, with the game in his hand, but with a high reputation involved in his playing his hand out to the last card in a masterly way. Not in the least anxious or disturbed is Mr. Bucket when Sir Lester appears, but he eyes the baronet aside as he comes slowly to his easy chair with that observant gravity of yesterday, in which they might have been yesterday, but for the audacity of the idea, a touch of compassion." "'I am sorry to have kept you waiting, officer, but I am rather later than my usual hour this morning. I am not well. The agitation and the indignation from which I have recently suffered have been too much for me. I am subject to gout.' Sir Lester was going to say indisposition, and would have said it to anybody else, but Mr. Bucket palpably knows all about it. "'And recent circumstances have brought it on.' As he takes his seat with some difficulty, and with an air of pain, Mr. Bucket draws a little nearer, standing with one of his large hands on the library table. "'I am not aware, officer,' Sir Lester observes, raising his eyes to his face, "'whether you wish us to be alone, but that is entirely as you please.' "'If you do, well and good. If not, Miss Dedlock would be interested.' "'Why, Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet,' returns Mr. Bucket, with his head persuasively on one side, and his forefinger pendant at one ear, like an earring, "'we can't be too private, just at present. You will presently see that we can't be too private.' A lady, under the circumstances, and especially in Miss Dedlock's elevated station of society, can't but be agreeable to me, but speaking without a view to myself, I will take the liberty of assuring you that I know we can't be too private. Ah, that is enough. So much so, Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, Mr. Bucket resumes, that I was on the point of asking your permission to turn the key in the door. By all means. Mr. Bucket skilfully and softly takes that precaution, stooping on his knee for a moment from mere force of habit, so to adjust the key in the lock, as that no one shall peep in from the outer side. Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet, I mentioned yesterday evening that I wanted but a very little to complete this case. I have now completed it, and collected proof against the person who did this crime. Against the soldier? No, Sir Lester Dedlock, not the soldier. Sir Lester looks astounded, and inquires, Is the man in custody? 
Mr. Bucket tells him after a pause, "'It was a woman.' Sir Leicester leans back in his chair, and breathlessly ejaculates, "'Good heaven!' "'Now, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet,' Mr. Bucket begins, standing over him with one hand spread out on the library table, and the forefinger of the other in impressive use, "'It's my duty to prepare you for a train of circumstances that may, and I go so far as to say that will, give you a shock. But, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, you are a gentleman, and I know what a gentleman is, and what a gentleman is capable of. A gentleman can bear a shock when it must come, boldly and steadily. A gentleman can make up his mind to stand up against almost any blow. Why, take yourself, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet. If there's a blow to be inflicted on you, you naturally think of your family. You ask yourself, how would all them ancestors of yours, away to Julius Caesar, not to go beyond him at present, have borne that blow? You remember scores of them that would have borne it well, and you bear it well on their accounts, and to maintain the family credit. That's the way you argue, and that's the way you act, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet." Sir Leicester, leaning back in his chair, and grasping the elbows, sits looking at him with a stony face. "'Now, Sir Leicester Dedlock,' proceeds Mr. Bucket, "'thus preparing you, let me beg of you not to trouble your mind for a moment as to anything having come to my knowledge. I know so much about so many characters, high and low, that a piece of information more or less don't signify a straw.' I don't suppose there's a move on the board that would surprise me, and as to this or that move having taken place, why, my knowing it is no odds at all, any possible move whatever, provided it's in a wrong direction, being a probable move according to my experience. Therefore, what I say to you, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, is, don't you go and let yourself be put out of the way because of my knowing anything of your family affairs. "'I thank you for your preparation,' returned Sir Leicester, after silence, without moving hand, foot, or feature, "'which, I hope, is not necessary, though I give it credit for being well intended. Be so good as to go on.' "'Also,' Sir Leicester seems to shrink in the shadow of his figure, also, to take a seat, if you have no objection. None at all. Mr. Bucket brings a chair, and diminishes his shadow. Now, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, with this short preface, I come to the point. Lady Dedlock, Sir Leicester raises himself in his seat, and stares at him fiercely. Mr. Bucket brings the finger into play as an emollient. Lady Dedlock, you see, she's universally admired. That's what her ladyship is. She's universally admired, says Mr. Bucket. I would greatly prefer, officer, Sir Leicester returns stiffly, my lady's name being entirely omitted from this discussion. So would I, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, but— it's impossible. Impossible? Mr. Bucket shakes his relentless head. 
Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, it's altogether impossible. What I have got to say is about her ladyship. She is the pivot it all turns on. Officer, retorts Sir Leicester with a fiery eye and a quivering lip, you know your duty. Do your duty, but be careful not to overstep it. I would not suffer it. I would not endure it. You bring my lady's name into this communication upon your responsibility. Upon your responsibility. My lady's name is not a name for common persons to trifle with. Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, I say what I must say, and no more. I hope it may prove so. Very well. Go on. Go on, sir. Glancing at the angry eyes which now avoid him, and at the angry figure trembling from head to foot, yet striving to be still, Mr. Bucket feels his way with his forefinger, and in a low voice proceeds, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, it becomes my duty to tell you that the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn long entertained mistrusts and suspicions of Lady Dedlock. If he had dared to breathe them to me, sir, which he never did, I would have killed him myself, exclaimed Sir Leicester, striking his hand upon the table. But in the very heat and fury of the act he stops, fixed by the knowing eyes of Mr. Bucket, whose forefinger is slowly going, and who, with mingled confidence and patience, shakes his head. Sir Leicester Dedlock, the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn, was deep and close, and what he fully had in his mind in the very beginning I can't quite take upon myself to say, but I know from his lips that he long ago suspected Lady Dedlock of having discovered, through the sight of some handwriting, in this very house, and when you yourself, Sir Leicester Dedlock, were present, the existence in great poverty of a certain person who had been her lover before you courted her, and who ought to have been her husband. Mr. Bucket stops, and deliberately repeats, ought to have been her husband, not a doubt about it. I know from his lips that when that person soon afterwards died, he suspected Lady Dedlock of visiting his wretched lodging, and his wretched grave, alone and in secret. I know from my own inquiries, and through my eyes and ears, that Lady Dedlock did make such visit in the dress of her own maid, for the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn employed me to reckon up her ladyship, if you'll excuse my making use of the term we commonly employ, and I reckoned her up so far completely. I confronted the maid in the chambers in Lincoln's Inn Fields with a witness, who had been Lady Dedlock's guide, and there couldn't be the shadow of a doubt that she had worn the young woman's dress unknown to her. Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, I did endeavour to pave the way a little towards these unpleasant disclosures yesterday, by saying that very strange things happened, even in high families sometimes. All this, and more, has happened in your family, and to, and through, your own lady— it's my belief that the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn followed up these inquiries to the hour of his death, and that he and Lady Dedlock 
even had bad blood between them upon the matter that very night. Now, only you put that to Lady Dedlock, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, and ask her ladyship whether, even after he had left here, she didn't go down to his chambers, with the intention of saying something further to him, dressed in a loose black mantle, with a deep fringe to it. Sir Leicester sits like a statue, gazing at the cruel finger that is probing the life-blood of his heart. "'You put that to her ladyship, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, from me, Inspector Bucket, of the detective. And if her ladyship makes any difficulty about admitting of it, you tell her that it's no use, that Inspector Bucket knows it, and knows that she passed the soldier, as you called him, though he's not in the army now, and knows that she knows she passed him on the staircase. Now, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, why do I relate all this?' Sir Leicester, who has covered his face with his hands, uttering a single groan, requests him to pause for a moment. By and by he takes his hands away, and so preserves his dignity and outward calmness, though there is no more colour in his face than in his white hair, that Mr. Bucket is a little awed by him. Something frozen and fixed is upon his manner, over and above its usual shell of haughtiness, and Mr. Bucket soon detects an unusual slowness in his speech, with now and then a curious trouble in beginning, which occasions him to utter inarticulate sounds. With such sounds he now breaks silence. Soon, however, controlling himself to say that he does not comprehend why a gentleman so faithful and zealous as the late Mr. Tulkinghorn should have communicated to him nothing of this painful, this distressing, this unlooked-for, this overwhelming, this incredible intelligence. "'Again, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet,' returns Mr. Bucket, "'put it to her ladyship to clear that up. Put it to her ladyship, if you think it right, from Inspector Bucket of the detective.' You'll find, or I'm much mistaken, that the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn had the intention of communicating the all to you as soon as he considered it ripe, and further that he had given her ladyship so to understand. Why, he might have been going to reveal it the very morning when I examined the body. You don't know what I'm going to say and do five minutes from this present time, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, and supposing I was to be picked off now— you might wonder why I hadn't done it, don't you see? True, Sir Leicester, avoiding with some trouble those obtrusive sounds, says, True. At this juncture a considerable noise of voices is heard in the hall. Mr. Bucket, after listening, goes to the library door, softly unlocks and opens it, and listens again. Then he draws in his head, and whispers hurriedly but composedly, "'Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, this unfortunate family affair has taken air, as I expected it might, the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn being cut down so sudden. The chance to hush it is to let in these people now in a wrangle with your footman. Would you mind sitting quiet on the family account while I reckon them up, and would you just throw in a nod when I seem to ask you for it?' Sir Leicester indistinctly answers, "'Officer, the best you can, the best you can.' And Mr. Bucket, with a nod and a sagacious crook of the forefinger, slips down into the hall, where the voices quickly die away. 
He is not long in returning, a few paces ahead of Mercury and a brother deity also powdered and in peach-blossomed smalls, who bear between them a chair in which is an incapable old man. Another man and two women come behind. Directing the pitching of the chair in an affable and easy manner, Mr. Bucket dismisses the Mercuries and locks the door again. Sir Leicester looks on at this invasion of the sacred precincts with an icy stare. "'Now, perhaps you may know me, ladies and gentlemen,' says Mr. Bucket in a confidential voice. "'I am Inspector Bucket of the Detective. I am. And this,' producing the tip of his convenient little staff from his breast-pocket, "'is my authority. Now, you wanted to see Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet. Well, you do see him. And mind you, it ain't every one as is admitted to that honour. Your name, old gentleman, is Smallweed. That's what your name is. I know it well. Well, and you never heard any harm of it, cries Mr. Smallweed in a shrill, loud voice. You don't happen to know why they killed the pig, do you? retorts Mr. Bucket, with a steadfast look, but without loss of temper. "'No. "'Why, they killed him,' says Mr. Bucket, "'on account of his having so much cheek. "'Don't you get into the same position, "'because it isn't worthy of you. "'You ain't in the habit of conversing with a deaf person, are you?' "'Yes,' snarls Mr. Smallweed. "'My wife's deaf.' "'That accounts for your pitching your voice so high.' "'But as she ain't here, just pitch it an octave or two lower, will you? "'And I'll not only be obliged to you, but it'll do you more credit,' says Mr. Bucket. "'This other gentleman is in the preaching line, I think.' "'Name of Chadband,' Mr. Smallweed puts in, speaking henceforth in a much lower key. "'Once had a friend and brother sergeant of the same name.' says Mr. Bucket, offering his hand, and consequently feel a liking for it. Mrs. Chadband, no doubt. And Mrs. Snagsby, Mr. Smallweed introduces. Husband, a law stationer, and a friend of my own, says Mr. Bucket. Love him like a brother. Now, what's up? Do you mean what business have we come upon? Mr. Smallweed asks, a little dashed by the suddenness of this turn. "'Ah, you know what I mean. Let us hear what it's all about in presence of Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet. Come.' Mr. Smallweed, beckoning Mr. Chadband, takes a moment's counsel with him in a whisper. Mr. Chadband, expressing a considerable amount of oil from the pores of his forehead and the palms of his hands, says aloud, "'Yes, yes, you first, and retires to his former place. "'I was the client and friend of Mr. Tulkinghorn, pipes Grandfather Smallweed then. "'I did business with him. I was useful to him, and he was useful to me. Crook, dead and gone, was my brother-in-law. He was own brother to a brimstone magpie—leastways, Mrs. Smallweed. I come into Crook's property.' I examined all his papers and all his effects. They was all dug out under my eyes. There was a bundle of letters belonging to a dead and gone lodger, as was hid away at the back of a shelf in the side of Lady Jane's bed, his cat's bed. He hid all manner of things away. 
everywheres. Mr. Tulkinghorn wanted him, and got him, but I looked him over first. I'm a man of business, and I took a squint at him. There was letters from the lodger's sweetheart, and she signed Honoria. Dear me, that's not a common name. Honoria, is it? There's no lady in this house that signs Honoria, is there? Oh, no, I don't think so. Oh, no, I don't think so. And not in the same hand, perhaps? Oh, no, I don't think so. Here Mr. Smallweed, seized with a fit of coughing in the midst of his triumph, breaks off to ejaculate, Oh, dear me, oh, Lord, I'm shaken all to pieces. Now, when you're ready, says Mr. Bucket, after awaiting his recovery, to come to anything that concerns Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet, here the gentleman sits, you know. Haven't I come to it, Mr. Bucket? cries Grandfather Smallweed. Isn't the gentleman concerned yet? Not with Captain Horden, and his ever-affectionate Honoria, and their child into the bargain? Come, then, I want to know where those letters are. That concerns me. If it don't concern Sir Lester Dedlock, I won't know where they are. I won't have him disappear so quietly. I handed him over to my friend and solicitor, Mr. Tulkinghorn, not to anybody else. Why, he paid you for him, you know, and handsome too, says Mr. Bucket. I don't care for that. I want to know who's got him. And I'll tell you what we want, what we all here want, Mr. Bucket. We want more painstaking and search-making into this murder. We know where the interest and the motive was— and you have not done enough. If George the Vagabond Dragoon had any hand in it, he was only an accomplice and was set on. You know what I mean, as well as any man. Now, I tell you what, says Mr. Bucket, instantaneously altering his manner, coming close to him, and communicating an extraordinary fascination to the forefinger. I am damned if I am a-going to have my case spoilt, or interfered with, or anticipated by so much as half a second of time, by any human being in creation. You want more painstaking and search-making. You do. Do you see this hand? Do you think that I don't know the right time to stretch it out, and put it on the arm that fired that shot? Such is the dread power of the man, and so terribly evident it is that he makes no idle boast, that Mr. Smallweed begins to apologise. Mr. Bucket, dismissing his sudden anger, checks him. "'The advice I give you is, don't you trouble your head about the murder. That's my affair. You keep half an eye on the newspapers, and I shouldn't wonder if you was to read something about it before long, if you look sharp. I know my business.' "'and that's all I've got to say to you on that subject. "'Now, about those letters. "'You want to know who's got them? "'I don't mind telling you. "'I've got them. "'Is that the packet?' "'Mr. Smallweed looks with greedy eyes "'at the little bundle Mr. Bucket produces "'from a mysterious part of his coat, "'and identifies it as the same. "'What have you got to say next?' "'asks Mr. Bucket. "'Now, don't open your mouth too wide, "'because you don't look handsome when you do it.' 
"'I want five hundred pound.' "'No, you don't. You mean fifty, says Mr. Bucket humorously. It appears, however, that Mr. Smallweed means five hundred. "'That is, I am deputed by Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet to consider, without admitting or promising anything, this bit of business,' says Mr. Bucket. Sir Lester mechanically bows his head. "'And you ask me to consider a proposal of five hundred pounds. Why, it's an unreasonable proposal. Two-fifty would be bad enough, but better than that. And you better say two-fifty. Mr. Smallweed is quite clear that he had better not. "'Then,' says Mr. Bucket, "'let's hear Mr. Chadband. Lord, many a time I've heard my fellow-sergeant of that name, and a moderate man he was in all respects, as ever I come across.' Thus invited, Mr. Chadband steps forth, and after a little sleek smiling, and a little oil-grinding with the palms of his hands, delivers himself as follows. "'My friends, we are now, Rachel, my wife, and I, in the mansions of the rich and great. Why are we now in the mansions of the rich and great, my friends? Is it because we are invited? Because we are bidden to feast with them, because we are bidden to rejoice with them, because we are bidden to play the lute with them, because we are bidden to dance with them? No. Then why are we here, my friends? Are we in possession of a sinful secret? And do we require corn and wine and oil? Oh, it is much the same thing, money, for the keeping thereof. "'Probably so, my friends.' "'You're a man of business, you are,' returns Mr. Bucket, very attentive, and consequently you're going on to mention what the nature of your secret is. You're right. You couldn't do better. "'Let us then, my brother, in a spirit of love,' says Mr. Chadband, with a cunning eye, "'proceed unto it. Rachel, my wife,' advance. Mrs. Chadband, more than ready, so advances as to jostle her husband into the background, and confronts Mr. Bucket with a hard frowning smile. "'Since you want to know what we know,' says she, "'I'll tell you. I helped to bring off Miss Horden, her ladyship's daughter. I was in the service of her ladyship's sister, who was very sensitive to the disgrace her ladyship brought upon her, and gave out even to her ladyship that the child was dead.' She was, very nearly so, when she was born, but she's alive, and I know her. With these words, and a laugh, and laying a bitter stress on the word ladyship, Mrs. Chadband folds her arms, and looks implacably at Mr. Bucket. "'I suppose now,' returns that officer, "'you will be expecting a twenty-pound note or a present of about that figure.' Mrs. Chadband merely laughs and contemptuously tells him he can offer twenty pence. "'My friend, the law station is good lady over there,' says Mr. Bucket, luring Mrs. Snagsby forward with the finger. "'What may your game be, ma'am?' Mrs. Snagsby is at first prevented, by tears and lamentations, from stating the nature of her game, but by degrees it confusedly comes to light that she is a woman overwhelmed with injuries and wrongs, whom Mr. Snagsby has habitually deceived, abandoned, and sought to keep in darkness, and whose chief comfort, under her afflictions, 
has been the sympathy of the late Mr. Tulkinghorn, who showed so much commiseration for her on one occasion of his calling in Cook's Court, in the absence of her perjured husband, that she has of late habitually carried to him all her woes. Everybody, it appears, the present company excepted, has plotted against Mrs. Snagsby's peace. There is Mr. Guppy, clerk to Kenge and Carboy, who was at first as open as the sun at noon, but who suddenly shut up as close as midnight, under the influence, no doubt, of Mr. Snagsby's suborning and tampering. There is Mr. Weevil, friend of Mr. Guppy, who lived mysteriously up a court, owing to the like coherent causes. There was Crook, deceased, there was Nimrod, deceased, and there was Joe, deceased, and they were all in it. In what Mrs. Snagsby does not with particularity express, but she knows that Joe was Mr. Snagsby's son, as well as if a trumpet had spoken it. And she followed Mr. Snagsby when he went on his last visit to the boy, and if he was not his son, why did he go? The one occupation of her life has been, for some time back, to follow Mr. Snagsby to and fro, and up and down, and to piece suspicious circumstances together. And every circumstance that has happened has been most suspicious, and in this way she has pursued her object of detecting and confounding her false husband night and day. Thus did it come to pass that she brought the Chadbands and Mr. Tulkinghorn together, and conferred with Mr. Tulkinghorn on the change in Mr. Guppy and help to turn up the circumstances in which the present company are interested, casually, by the wayside, being still and ever on the great high road that is to terminate in Mr. Snagsby's full exposure and a matrimonial separation. All this, Mrs. Snagsby, as an injured woman, and the friend of Mrs. Chadband, and the follower of Mr. Chadband, and the mourner of the late Mr. Tulkinghorn, is here to certify, under the seal of confidence, with every possible confusion and involvement possible and impossible, having no pecuniary motive whatever, no scheme or project but the one mentioned, and bringing here, and taking everywhere, her own dense atmosphere of dust, arising from the ceaseless work of her mill of jealousy." While this exordium is in hand, and it takes some time, Mr. Bucket, who has seen through the transparency of Mrs. Snagsby's vinegar at a glance, confers with his familiar demon, and bestows his shrewd attention on the Chadbands and Mr. Smallweed. Sir Lester Dedlock remains immovable, with the same icy surface upon him, except that he once or twice looks towards Mr. Bucket, as relying on that officer alone of all mankind. "'Very good.' says Mr. Bucket. Now, I understand you, you know, and being deputed by Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet to look into this little matter—again Sir Lester mechanically bows in confirmation of the statement—can give it my fair and full attention. Now, I won't allude to conspiring to extort money, or anything of that sort, because we are men and women of the world here, and our object is to make things pleasant. But I tell you what I do wonder at. I'm surprised that you should think of making a noise below in the hall. It was so opposed to your interests. That's what I look at. We wanted to get in, pleased Mr. Smallweed. Why, of course you wanted to get in, Mr. Bucket asserts with cheerfulness. But for an old gentleman, at your time of life, what I call truly venerable, mind you, with his wits sharpened, as I have no doubt they are, by the loss of the use of his limbs, which occasions all his animation to mount up into his head, 
not to consider that if he don't keep such a business as the present as close as possible, it can't be worth a mag to him. He's so curious. You see, your temper got the better of you. That's where you lost ground, says Mr. Bucket in an argumentative and friendly way. "'I only said I wouldn't go without one of the servants came up to Sir Lester Dedlock,' returns Mr. Smallweed. "'That's it. That's where your temper got the better of you. Now, you keep it under another time, and you'll make money by it. Shall I ring for them to carry you down?' "'When are we to hear more of this?' Mrs. Chadband sternly demands. "'Bless your heart for a true woman!' "'Always curious, your delightful sexes,' replies Mr. Bucket with gallantry. "'I shall have the pleasure of giving you a call to-morrow, or next day, "'not forgetting Mr. Smallweed and his proposal of two fifty. Five hundred! exclaims Mr. Smallweed. "'All right, nominally five hundred. Mr. Bucket has his hand on the bell-rope. "'Shall I wish you good day for the present on the part of myself and the gentleman of the house?' he asks in an insinuating tone. Nobody having the hardihood to object to his doing so, he does it, and the party retire as they came up. Mr. Bucket follows them to the door, and returning, says with an air of serious business, "'Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, is for you to consider whether or not to buy this up. I should recommend, on the whole, it's being bought up myself, and I think it may be bought pretty cheap.' "'You see, that little pickled cowcumber of Mrs. Snagsby "'has been used by all sides of the speculation, "'and has done a deal more harm in bringing odds and ends together "'than if she had meant it. "'Mr. Tulkinghorn, deceased, "'he held all these horses in his hand, "'and could have drove him his own way, I haven't a doubt. "'But he was fetched off the box head foremost, "'and now they have got their legs over the traces,' "'and are all dragging and pulling their own ways. "'So it is, and such is life. "'The cat's away, and the mice they play. "'The frost breaks up, and the water runs. "'Now, with regard to the party, to be apprehended.' "'Sir Lester seems to wake, though his eyes have been wide open, "'and he looks intently at Mr. Bucket, "'as Mr. Bucket refers to his watch.' "'The party to be apprehended is now in this house,' proceeds Mr. Bucket, putting up his watch with a steady hand and with rising spirits. "'And I am about to take her into custody in your presence. Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, don't you say a word, nor yet stir. There'll be no noise and no disturbance at all. I'll come back in the course of the evening, if agreeable to you, and endeavour to meet your wishes respecting this unfortunate family matter, and the nobbiest way of keeping it quiet. Now, Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, don't you be nervous on account of the apprehension at present coming off. You shall see the whole case clear from first to last. Mr. Bucket rings, goes to the door, briefly whispers Mercury, shuts the door, and stands behind it with his arms folded. After suspense of a minute or two, the door slowly opens, and a Frenchwoman enters, Mademoiselle Hortense. The moment she is in the room, Mr. Bucket claps the door to, and puts his back against it. The suddenness of the noise occasions her to turn, and then for the first time she sees Sir Lester Dedlock in his chair. "'Ah! I ask your pardon,' 
she mutters hurriedly, they tell me there was no one here. Her step towards the door brings her front to front with Mr. Bucket. Suddenly a spasm shoots across her face, and she turns deadly pale. "'This is my lodger, Sir Lester Dedlock,' says Mr. Bucket, nodding at her. "'This foreign young woman has been my lodger for some weeks back.' "'What do Sir Lester care for that, you think, my angel?' returns Mademoiselle in a jocular strain. "'Why, my angel,' returns Mr. Bucket, "'we shall see.' Mademoiselle Hortense eyes him with a scowl upon her tight face, which gradually changes into a smile of scorn. "'You are very mysterious. Are you drunk?' "'Tolerable sober, my angel,' returns Mr. Bucket. "'I come from arriving at this so detestable house with your wife. Your wife have left me since some minutes. They tell me downstairs that your wife is here.' I come here, and your wife is not here. What is the intention of this fool's play, say then? Mademoiselle demands, with her arms composedly crossed, but with something in her dark cheek beating like a clock. Mr. Bucket merely shakes the finger at her. Ah, by God, you are an unhappy idiot, cries Mademoiselle, with a toss of her head and a laugh. Leave me to pass downstairs, great pig, with a stamp of her foot and a menace. "'Now, mademoiselle,' says Mr. Bucket, in a cool, determined way, "'you go and sit down upon that sofa.' "'I will not sit down upon nothing,' she replies with a shower of nods. "'Now, mademoiselle,' repeats Mr. Bucket, making no demonstration except with the finger, "'you sit down upon that sofa.' "'Why?' "'Because I take you into custody.' on a charge of murder, and you don't need to be told it. Now, I want to be polite to one of your sex, and a foreigner, if I can. If I can't, I must be rough, and there's rougher ones outside. What I am to be depends on you, so I recommend you, as a friend, afore another, half a blessed moment has passed over your head, to go and sit down upon that Sophie. Mademoiselle complies, saying in a concentrated voice, while that something in her cheek beats fast and hard, "'You are a devil!' "'Now, you see,' Mr. Bucket proceeds approvingly, "'you're comfortable, and conducting yourself as I should expect a foreign young woman of your sense to do. So I'll give you a piece of advice, and it's this. Don't you talk too much. You're not expected to say anything here, and you can't keep too quiet a tongue in your head. In short, the less you parlay, the better, you know. Mr. Bucket is very complacent over this French explanation. Mademoiselle, with that tigerish expansion of the mouth, and her black eyes darting fire upon him, sits upright on the sofa in a rigid state, with her hands clenched, and her feet too, one might suppose, muttering, Oh, you Bucket, you are a devil. Now, Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, says Mr. Bucket, and from this time forth the finger never rests. This young woman, my lodger, was her ladyship's maid at the time I have mentioned to you, and this young woman, besides being extraordinary vehement and passionate against her ladyship, after being discharged, 
"'Lie!' cries mademoiselle. "'I discharge myself.' "'Now, why don't you take my advice?' returns Mr. Bucket in an impressive, almost in an imploring tone. "'I'm surprised at the indiscreetness you commit. You'll say something that'll be used against you, you know. You're sure to come to it. Never you mind what I say till it's given in evidence. It is not addressed to you.' "'Discharge, too!' cries Mademoiselle furiously. "'By her ladyship!' Eh? My faith, a pretty ladyship! Why, I ruin my character by remaining with a ladyship so infame. Upon my soul, I wonder at you, Mr. Bucket remonstrates. I thought the French were a polite nation. I did, really. Yet to hear a female going on like that before Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet. He is a poor abused, cries Mademoiselle. I spit upon his house, upon his name, upon his imbecility, all of which she makes the carpet represent. Oh, that he is a great man! Oh, yes, superb! Oh, heaven, bah! Well, Sir Lester Dedlock, proceeds Mr. Bucket, this intemperate foreigner also angrily took it into her head that she had established a claim upon Mr. Tulkinghorn, deceased by attending on the occasion I told you of at his chambers, though she was liberally paid for her time and trouble. "'Lie!' cries Mademoiselle. "'I refuse his money altogether.' "'If you will parley, you know,' says Mr. Bucket parenthetically, "'you must take the consequences. Now, whether she became my lodger, Sir Lester Dedlock, with any deliberate intent, then, of doing this deed and blinding me, I give no opinion on. But she lived in my house in that capacity at the time that she was hovering about the chambers of the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn, with a view to a wrangle, and likewise persecuting and half-frightening the life out of an unfortunate stationer. Lie! cries Mademoiselle. All lie! The murder was committed. Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, and you know under what circumstances. Now, I beg of you to follow me close with your attention for a minute or two. I was sent for, and the case was untrusted to me. I examined the place, and the body, and the papers, and everything. From information I received from a clerk in the same house, I took George into custody, as having been seen hanging about there on the night and at very nigh the time of the murder, also as having been overheard in high words with the deceased on former occasions, even threatening him, as the witness made out. If you ask me, Sir Lester Dedlock, whether from the first I believed George to be the murderer, I tell you candidly, no. But he might be, notwithstanding, and there was enough against him to make it my duty to take him, and get him kept under remand. Now observe. As Mr. Bucket bends forward in some excitement, for him, and inaugurates what he is going to say with one ghostly beat of his forefinger in the air, Mademoiselle Hortense fixes her black eyes upon him with a dark frown, and sets her dry lips closely and firmly together. I went home, Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet, at night, and found this young woman having supper with my wife, Mrs. Bucket. She had made a mighty show of being fond of Mrs. Bucket, 
from her first offering herself as our lodger, but that night she made more than ever, in fact, overdid it. Likewise she overdid her respect, and all that, for the lamented memory of the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn. By the living Lord it flashed upon me, as I sat opposite to her at the table and saw her with a knife in her hand, that she had done it. Mademoiselle is hardly audible, in straining through her teeth and lips the words, "'You are the devil!' "'Now where,' pursues Mr. Bucket, "'had she been on the night of the murder? "'She had been to the theatre. "'She really was there, I have since found, "'both before the deed and after it. "'I knew I had an artful customer to deal with, "'and that proof would be very difficult.' and I laid a trap for her. Such a trap as I never laid yet, and such a venture as I never made yet. I worked it out in my mind while I was talking to her at supper. When I went upstairs to bed, our house being small, and this young woman's ears sharp, I stuffed the sheet into Mrs. Bucket's mouth, that she shouldn't say a word of surprise, and told her all about it. "'My dear, don't you give your mind to that again, or I shall link your feet together at the ankles.' Mr. Bucket, breaking off, has made a noiseless descent upon Mademoiselle, and laid his heavy hand upon her shoulder. "'What is the matter with you now?' she asks him. "'Don't you think any more,' returns Mr. Bucket, with an admonitory finger, "'of throwing yourself out of window. That's what's the matter with me. Come, just take my arm.' "'You needn't get up. I'll sit down by you. "'Now, take my arm, will you? "'I'm a married man, you know. "'You're acquainted with my wife. "'Just take my arm.' "'Vainly endeavouring to moisten those dry lips, "'with a painful sound, she struggles with herself, and complies. "'Now, we're all right again. "'Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, "'this case could never have been the case it is, "'but for Mrs. Bucket, who is a woman in fifty thousand in a hundred and fifty thousand. To throw this young woman off her guard, I have never set foot in our house since, though I have communicated with Mrs. Bucket in the baker's loaves and in the milk, as often as required. My whispered words to Mrs. Bucket, when she had the sheet in her mouth, were, "'My dear, can you throw her off continually with natural accounts of my suspicions against George, and this and that and t'other? Can you do without rest?' and keep watch upon her night and day. Can you undertake to say, she shall do nothing without my knowledge, she shall be my prisoner without suspecting it, she shall no more escape from me than from death, and her life shall be my life, and her soul my soul, till I have got her, if she did this murder? Mrs. Bucket says to me, as well as she could speak on account of the sheet, Bucket, I can, and she has acted up to it glorious. "'Lies!' Mademoiselle interposes. "'All lies, my friend!' "'Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, "'how did my calculations come out under these circumstances? "'When I calculated that this impetuous young woman "'would overdo it in new directions, "'was I wrong or right? "'I was right. "'What does she try to do? "'Don't let it give you a turn.' "'to throw the murder on her ladyship.' "'Sir Lester rises from his chair, and staggers down again. 
and she got encouragement in it from hearing that I was always here, which was done a purpose. Now, open that pocket-book of mine, Sir Lester Dedlock, if I may take the liberty of throwing it towards you, and look at the letters sent to me, each with the two words, Lady Dedlock, in it. Open the one directed to yourself, which I stopped this very morning, and read the three words, Lady Dedlock Murderess, in it. These letters have been falling about like a shower of ladybirds. What do you say now to Mrs. Bucket, from her spy-place, having seen them all written by this young woman? What do you say to Mrs. Bucket, having, within this half-hour, secured the corresponding ink and paper, fellow half-sheets, and what not? What do you say to Mrs. Bucket, having watched the posting of him, every one, by this young woman? So Lester Dedlock, Baronet? Mr. Bucket asks, triumphant in his admiration of his lady's genius. Two things are especially observable, as Mr. Bucket proceeds to a conclusion. First, that he seems imperceptibly to establish a dreadful right of property in Mademoiselle. Secondly, that the very atmosphere she breathes seems to narrow and contract about her, as if a close net or a pall were being drawn nearer and yet nearer around her breathless figure. "'There is no doubt that her ladyship was on the spot at the eventful period,' says Mr. Bucket. "'And my foreign friend here saw her, I believe, from the upper part of the staircase. Her ladyship and George and my foreign friend were all pretty close on one another's heels, but that don't signify any more, so I'll not go into it. I found the wadding of the pistol with which the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn was shot. It was a bit of the printed description of your house at Chesney Wold.' "'Not much in that, you'll say, Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet. "'No, but when my foreign friend here is so thoroughly off her guard "'as to think it a safe time to tear up the rest of that leaf, "'and when Mrs. Bucket puts the pieces together and finds the wadding wanting, "'it begins to look like Queer Street.' "'These are very long lies,' Mademoiselle interposes. "'You pause great deal.' "'Is it that you have almost finished, or are you speaking always?' "'Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet,' proceeds Mr. Bucket, who delights in a full title, and does violence to himself when he dispenses with any fragment of it, "'the last point in the case, which I am now going to mention, shows the necessity of patience in our business, and never doing a thing in hurry. I watched this young woman yesterday without her knowledge, when she was looking at the funeral.' in company with my wife, who planned to take her there. And I had so much to convict her, and I saw such an expression in her face, and my mind so rose against her malice towards her ladyship, and the time was altogether such a time for bringing down what you may call retribution upon her, that if I had been a younger hand, with less experience, I should have taken her, certain. Equally, last night, when her ladyship— as is so universally admired, I am sure, come home looking, why, Lord, a man might almost say like Venus, rising from the ocean. It was so unpleasant and inconsistent to think of her being charged with a murder of which she was innocent, that I felt quite to want to put an end to the job. What should I have lost? Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet, I should have lost the weapon. My prisoner here, proposed to Mrs. Bucket, after the departure of the funeral, that they should go purpose 
a little ways into the country, and take tea at a very decent house of entertainment. Now, near that house of entertainment, there's a piece of water. At tea, my prisoner got up to fetch her pocket-handkerchief from the bedroom where the bonnets was. She was rather a long time gone, and came back a little out of wind. As soon as they came home, this was reported to me by Mrs. Bucket, along with her observations and suspicions. I had the piece of water dragged by moonlight, in presence of a couple of our men, and the pocket-pistol was brought up before it had been there half a dozen hours. Now, my dear, put your arm a little further through mine, and hold it steady, and I shan't hurt you. In a trice, Mr. Bucket snaps a handcuff on her wrist. That's one, says Mr. Bucket. Now the other, darling. Two, and all told. He rises, she rises too. Where? She asks him, darkening her large eyes until their drooping lids almost conceal them, and yet they stare. Where is your false, your treacherous and cursed wife? She's gone forward to the police office, returns Mr. Bucket. You'll see her there, my dear. I would like to kiss her, exclaims Mademoiselle Hortense, panting tigress-like. You'd bite her, I suspect, says Mr. Bucket. I would, making her eyes very large. I would love to tear her limb from limb. Bless you, darling, says Mr. Bucket with the greatest composure. I'm fully prepared to hear that. Your sex have such a surprising animosity against one another when you do differ. You don't mind me half so much, do you? No, though you are a devil still. Angel and devil by turns, eh? cries Mr. Bucket. But I am in my regular employment, you must consider. Let me put your shawl tidy. I've been ladies may do a good many before now. Anything wanting to the bonnet? Ah, there's a cab at the door. Mademoiselle Hortense, casting an indignant eye at the glass, shakes herself perfectly neat in one shake, and looks, to do her justice, uncommonly genteel. Listen, then, my angel, says she, after several sarcastic nods, you are very spiritual, but can you restore him back to life? Mr. Bucket answers, not exactly. That is droll. Listen yet one more time. You are very spiritual. Can you make an honourable lady of her? Don't be so malicious, says Mr. Bucket. Or a haughty gentleman of him, cries Mademoiselle, referring to Sir Leicester, with ineffable disdain. Eh? Oh, then regard him, the poor infant. <laughs> come, come, why, this is worse parlaying than the other, says Mr. Bucket. Come along. You cannot do these things. "'Then you can do as you please with me. "'It is but the death. "'It is all the same. "'Let us go, my angel. "'Adieu, you old man grey. "'I pity you, and I despise you.' "'With these last words she snaps her teeth together, "'as if her mouth closed with a spring. "'It is impossible to describe "'how Mr. Bucket gets her out.' 
but he accomplishes that feat in a manner so peculiar to himself, enfolding and pervading her like a cloud, and hovering away with her as if he were a homely Jupiter, and she the object of his affections. Sir Leicester, left alone, remains in the same attitude, as though he were still listening, and his attention was still occupied. At length he gazes round the empty room, and finding it deserted, rises unsteadily to his feet, pushes back his chair, and walks a few steps, supporting himself by the table. Then he stops, and with more of those inarticulate sounds, lifts up his eyes, and seems to stare at something. Heaven knows what he sees. The green-green woods of Chesney Wold, the noble house, the pictures of his forefathers, strangers defacing them, officers of police coarsely handling his most precious heirlooms, thousands of fingers pointing at him, thousands of faces sneering at him. But if such shadows flit before him to his bewilderment, there is one other shadow which he can name, with something like distinctness even yet, and to which alone he addresses his tearing of his white hair and his extended arms. It is she, in association with whom, saving that she has been for years a main fibre of the root of his dignity and pride, he has never had a selfish thought. It is she whom he has loved, admired, honoured, and set up for the world to respect. It is she who, at the core of all the constrained formalities and conventionalities of his life, has been a stock of living tenderness and love, susceptible as nothing else is of being struck with the agony he feels. He sees her, almost to the exclusion of himself, and cannot bear to look upon her cast down from the high place she has graced so well. And even to the point of his sinking on the ground, oblivious of his suffering, he can yet pronounce her name with something like distinctness in the midst of those intrusive sounds, and in a tone of mourning and compassion rather than reproach. End of chapter 54《》when through the night and along the freezing wintry roads a chaise and pair comes out of lincolnshire making its way towards london railroads shall soon traverse all this country and with a rattle and a glare the engine and train shall shoot like a meteor over the wide night landscape turning the moon paler but as yet such things are non-existent in these parts though not wholly unexpected preparations are afoot measurements are made ground is staked out. Bridges are begun, and their not yet united peers desolately look at one another over roads and streams, like brick-and-mortar couples, with an obstacle to their union. Fragments of embankments are thrown up and left as precipices, with torrents of rusty carts and barrows tumbling over them. Tripods of tall poles appear on hilltops, where there are rumours of tunnels. Everything looks chaotic and abandoned in full hopelessness. 
Along the freezing roads and through the night, the post-chaise makes its way without a railroad on its mind. Mrs. Rouncewell, so many years housekeeper at Chesney Wold, sits within the chaise, and by her side sits Mrs. Bagnet with her grey cloak and umbrella. The old girl would prefer the bar in front, as being exposed to the weather in a primitive sort of perch, more in accordance with her usual course of travelling, but Mrs. Rouncewell is too thoughtful of her comfort to admit of her proposing it. The old lady cannot make enough of the old girl. She sits, in her stately manner, holding her hand, and, regardless of its roughness, puts it often to her lips. "'You are a mother, my dear soul.' says she many times, "'and you found out my George's mother.' "'Why, George,' returns Mrs. Bagnet, "'was always free with me, ma'am. "'And when he said at our house to my Woolwich, "'that of all the things my Woolwich could have to think of "'when he grew to be a man, "'the comfortablest would be "'that he had never brought a sorrowful line into his mother's face "'or turned a hair of her head grey.' Then I felt sure, from his way, that something fresh had brought his own mother into his mind. I had often known him say to me in past times that he had behaved bad to her. "'Never, my dear,' returns Mrs. Rouncewell, bursting into tears. "'My blessing on him, never. He was always fond of me, and loving to me was my George.' but he had a bold spirit and he ran a little wild and went for a soldier and i know he waited at first in letting us know about himself till he should rise to be an officer and when he didn't rise i know he considered himself beneath us and wouldn't be a disgrace to us for he had a lion heart had my george always from a baby the old lady's hands stray about her as of yore while she recalls, all in a tremble, what a likely lad, what a fine lad, what a gay, good-humoured, clever lad he was, how they all took to him down at Chesney Wold, how Sir Leicester took to him when he was a young gentleman, how the dogs took to him, how even the people who had been angry with him forgave him the moment he was gone, poor boy, and now to see him after all, and in a prison too, and the broad stomacher heaves, and the quaint upright old-fashioned figure bends under its load of affectionate distress. Mrs. Bagnet, with the instinctive skill of a good warm heart, leaves the old housekeeper to her emotions for a little while, not without passing the back of her hand across her own motherly eyes, and presently chirps up in her cheery manner. "'So I says to George, when I goes to call him in to tea,' He pretended to be smoking his pipe outside. "'What ails you this afternoon, George, for gracious sake? I've seen all sorts, and I've seen you pretty often in season and out of season, abroad and at home, and I never see you so melancholy penitent. "'Why, Mrs. Bagnet,' says George, "'it's because I am melancholy and penitent both this afternoon that you see me so. "'What have you done, old fellow?' I says. "'Why, Mrs. Bagnet,' says George, shaking his head, "'What I have done has been done this many a long year, "'and is best not tried to be undone now. "'If I ever get to heaven, "'it won't be for being a good son to a widowed mother. "'I say no more. "'Now, ma'am, when George says to me "'that it's best not tried to be undone now, "'I have my thoughts, as I have often had before, "'and I draw it out of George, 
how he comes to have such things on him that afternoon. Then George tells me that he has seen by chance, at the lawyer's office, a fine old lady that has brought his mother plain before him, and he runs on about that old lady till he quite forgets himself, and paints her picture to me as she used to be years upon years back. So I says to George, when he has done, who is this old lady he has seen? And George tells me it's Mrs. Rouncewell, housekeeper for more than half a century to the Dedlock family down at Chesney Wold in Lincolnshire. George has frequently told me before that he's a Lincolnshire man, and I says to my old Lignum that night, Lignum, that's his mother for five and forty pound. All this Mrs. Bagnet now relates for the twentieth time at least within the last four hours, trilling it out like a kind of bird with a pretty high note that it may be audible to the old lady above the hum of the wheels. "'Bless you, and thank you,' says Mrs. Rouncewell. "'Bless you, and thank you, my worthy soul.' "'Dear art,' cries Mrs. Bagnet in the most natural manner. "'No thanks to me, I'm sure. Thanks to yourself, ma'am, for being so ready to pay him. And mind, once more, ma'am, what you had best do on finding George to be your own son, is to make him, for your sake, have every sort of help to put himself in the right, and clear himself of a charge of which he is as innocent as you or me. It won't do to have truth and justice on his side.' "'He must have law and lawyers,' exclaims the old girl, apparently persuaded that the latter form a separate establishment, and have dissolved partnership with truth and justice for ever and a day. "'He shall have,' says Mrs. Rouncewell, "'all the help that can be got for him in the world, my dear. I will spend all I have, and thankfully, to procure it.' "'Sir Lester will do his best. "'The whole family will do their best. "'I I know something, my dear, "'and will make my own appeal, as his mother, "'parted from him all these years, "'and finding him in a jail at last.' "'The extreme disquietude of the old housekeeper's manner in saying this, "'her broken words and her wringing of her hands, "'make a powerful impression on Mrs. Bagnet, "'and would astonish her, but that she refers them all to her sorrow for her son's condition. And yet Mrs. Bagnet wonders, too, why Mrs. Rouncewell should murmur so distractedly, "'My lady! My lady! My lady!' over and over again. The frosty night wears away, and the dawn breaks, and the post-chaise comes rolling on through the early mist, like the ghost of a chaise departed. It has plenty of spectral company in ghosts of trees and hedges, slowly vanishing and giving place to the realities of day. London reached, the travellers alight, the old housekeeper in great tribulation and confusion, Mrs. Bagnet quite fresh and collected, as she would be if her next point, with no new equipage and outfit, were the Cape of Good Hope, the Island of Ascension, Hong Kong, or any other military station." but when they set out for the prison where the trooper is confined the old lady has managed to draw about her with her lavender-coloured dress much of the staid calmness which is its usual accompaniment a wonderfully grave precise and handsome piece of old china she looks though her heart beats fast and her stomacher is ruffled more than even the remembrance of this wayward son has ruffled it these many years 
Approaching the cell, they find the door opening and a warder in the act of coming out. The old girl promptly makes a sign of entreaty to him to say nothing. Assenting with a nod, he suffers them to enter as he shuts the door. So George, who is writing at his table, supposing himself to be alone, does not raise his eyes, but remains absorbed. The old housekeeper looks at him, and those wandering hands of hers are quite enough for Mrs. Bagnet's confirmation, even if she could see the mother and the son together, knowing what she knows, and doubt their relationship. Not a rustle of the housekeeper's dress, not a gesture, not a word, betrays her. She stands looking at him as he writes on, all unconscious, and only her fluttering hands give utterance to her emotions. But they are very eloquent, very, very eloquent. Mrs. Bagnet understands them. They speak of gratitude, of joy, of grief, of hope, of inextinguishable affection, cherished with no return since this stalwart man was a stripling, of a better son loved less, and this son loved so fondly and so proudly, and they speak in such touching language that Mrs. Bagnet's eyes brim up with tears, and they run glistening down her sun-brown face. "'George Rouncewell! Oh, my dear child! Turn and look at me!' The trooper starts up, clasps his mother round the neck, and falls down on his knees before her. Whether in a late repentance, whether in the first association that comes back upon him, he puts his hands together as a child does when it says its prayers, and raising them towards her breast, bows down his head and cries, "'My George! My dearest son! Always my favourite, and my favourite still!' Where have you been these cruel years and years? Grown such a man, too! Grown such a fine, strong man! Grown so like what I knew he must be, if it pleased God he was alive! She can ask, and he can answer, nothing connected for a time. All that time the old girl, turned away, leans one arm against the whitened wall, leans her honest forehead upon it, wipes her eyes with her serviceable grey cloak, and quite enjoys herself, like the best of old girls as she is. "'Mother,' says the trooper, when they are more composed, "'forgive me, first of all, for I know my need of it.' "'Forgive him? He does it with all her heart and soul. She always has done it. She tells him how she has had it written in her will these many years.' that he was her beloved son George. She has never believed any ill of him, never. If she had died without this happiness, and she is an old woman now, and can't look to live very long, she would have blessed him with her last breath, if she had had her senses as her beloved son George. "'Mother, I've been an undutiful trouble to you, and I have my reward. Puff late years, I have had a kind of glimmering of a purpose in me, too. When I left home, I didn't care much, mother. I'm afraid not a great deal, for leaving, and went away and listed, harem scarem, making believe to think that I cared for nobody, no, not I, and that nobody cared for me. The trooper has dried his eyes, and put away his handkerchief, 
but there is an extraordinary contrast between his habitual manner of expressing himself and carrying himself, and the softened tone in which he speaks, interrupted occasionally by a half-stifled sob. "'So I wrote a line home, mother, as you too well know, to say I had listed under another name, and I went abroad. <laughs> abroad, at one time, I thought I would write home next year, when I might be better off, and when that year was out, I thought I would write home next year, when I might be better off. <laughs> and when that year was out again, perhaps I didn't think much about it. So on, from year to year, through a service of ten years, till I began to get older, and to ask myself, why should I ever write? I don't find any fault, child. But not to ease my mind, George. Not a word to your loving mother, who is growing older, too. This almost overturns the trooper afresh, but he sets himself up with a great, rough, sounding clearance of his throat. Evan, forgive me, mother. "'But I thought there would be small consolation, then, "'in hearing anything about me. "'There were you, respected and esteemed. "'There was my brother, as I read in chance "'North Country papers now and then, "'rising to be prosperous and famous. "'There was I, a dragoon, roving, unsettled, "'not self-made like him, but self-unmade, "'all by earlier advantages thrown away.' all my little learning unlearnt nothing picked up but what unfitted me for most things that i could think of what business had i to make myself known after letting all that time go by me what good could come of it the worst was past with you mother i knew by that time being a man how you had mourned for me and wept for me and prayed for me and the pain was over all was softened down and i was better in your mind as it was the old lady sorrowfully shakes her head and taking one of his powerful hands lays it lovingly upon her shoulder no i don't say that it was so mother but that i made it out to be so i said just now what good could come of it well my dear mother some good might have come of it to myself and there was the meanness of it. You would have sought me out. You would have purchased my discharge. You would have taken me down to Chesney Wold. You would have brought me and my brother and my brother's family together. You would all have considered anxiously how to do something for me, and set me up as a respectable civilian. But how could any of you feel sure of me, when I couldn't so much as feel sure of myself?' How could you help regarding as an encumbrance and a discredit to you, an idle, dragooning chap, who was an encumbrance and a discredit to himself, excepting under discipline? How could I look my brother's children in the face, and pretend to set them an example? I, the vagabond boy who had run away from home, and been the grief and unhappiness of my mother's life? No, George, such were my words, mother when I pass this in review before me. You have made your bed. Now lie upon it. Mrs. Rouncewell, drawing up her stately form, shakes her head at the old girl with a swelling pride upon her, as much as to say, I told you so. 
the old girl relieves her feelings and testifies her interest in the conversation by giving the trooper a great poke between the shoulders with her umbrella this action she afterwards repeats at intervals in a species of affectionate lunacy never failing after the administration of each of these remonstrances to resort to the whitened wall and the grey cloak again this was the way i brought myself to think mother that my best amends was to lie upon that bed i had made and and die upon it and i should have done it though i have been to see you more than once down at chesney wold when you little thought of me but for my old comrade's wife here who i find has been too many for me but i thank her for it i thank you for it mrs bagnet with all my heart and might to which mrs bagnet responds with two pokes and now the old lady impresses upon her son george her own dear recovered boy her joy and pride the light of her eyes the happy close of her life and every fond name she can think of that he must be governed by the best advice obtainable by money and influence that he must yield up his case to the greatest lawyers that can be got that he must act in this serious plight as he shall be advised to act and must not be self-willed however right but must promise to think only of his poor old mother's anxiety and suffering until he is released or he will break her heart mother tis little enough to consent to returns the trooper stopping her with a kiss tell me what shall i do and i'll make a late beginning and do it mrs bagnet you'll take care of my mother i know a very hard poke from the old girl's umbrella if you bring her acquainted with mr jarndyce and miss summerson she will find them of her way of thinking and they will give her the best advice and assistance and george says the old lady we must send with all haste for your brother he is a sensible sound man as they tell me out in the world beyond chesney wold my dear though i don't know much of it myself and will be of great service mother returns the trooper is it too soon to ask a favour surely not my dear then grant me this one great favour don't let my brother know not know what my dear not know of me in fact mother i can't bear it i can't make up my mind to it he has proved himself so different from me and has done so much to raise himself while while i've been soldiering that i haven't brass enough in my composition to see him in this place and under this charge how could a man like him be expected to have any pleasure in such a discovery it's impossible no keep my secret from him mother do me a greater kindness than i deserve and keep my secret from my brother of all men but not always dear george why mother perhaps not for good and all though i may come to ask that too but keep it now i do entreat you if it's ever broke to him that his rip of a brother has turned up i could wish says the trooper shaking his head very doubtfully to break it myself and be governed as to advancing or retreating by the way in which he seems to take it as he evidently has a rooted feeling on this point and as the depth of it is recognised in mrs bagnet's face 
his mother yields her implicit assent to what he asks. For this he thanks her kindly. "'In all other respects, my dear mother, I'll be as tractable and obedient as you can wish. On this one alone, I stand out. So, now I am ready, even for the lawyers. I've been drawing up—he glances at his writing on the table—an exact account of what I knew of the deceased, and how I come to be involved in this unfortunate affair. It's entered, plain and regular, like an orderly book. Not a word in it, but what's wanted for the facts. I did intend to read it, straight on end, whensoever I was called upon to say anything in my defence. I hope I may be let to do it still, but I have no longer a will of my own in this case, and whatever is said or done, I give my promise not to have any. Matters being brought to this so far satisfactory pass, and time being on the wane, Mrs. Bagnet proposes a departure. Again and again the old lady hangs upon her son's neck, and again and again the trooper holds her to his broad chest. "'Where are you going to take my mother, Mrs. Bagnet?' "'I'm going to the town-house, my dear, the family-house. I have some business there that must be looked to directly,' Mrs. Rouncewell answers. "'Will you see my mother safe there in a coach, Mrs. Bagnet?' "'But of course, I know you will. Why should I ask it?' "'Why, indeed,' Mrs. Bagnet expresses with the umbrella. "'Take her, my old friend, and take my gratitude along with you. Kisses to Quebec and Malta, love to my godson, hearty shake of the hand to Lignum, and this for yourself, and I wish it was ten thousand pound in gold, my dear.' So saying, the trooper puts his lips to the old girl's tanned forehead, and the door shuts upon him in his cell. No entreaties on the part of the good old housekeeper will induce Mrs. Bagnet to retain the coach for her own conveyance home. Jumping out cheerfully at the door of the deadlock mansion, and handing Mrs. Rouncewell up the steps, the old girl shakes hands and trudges off, arriving soon afterwards in the bosom of the Bagnet family, and falling to washing the greens as if nothing had happened. My lady is in that room in which she held her last conference with the murdered man, and is sitting where she sat that night, and is looking at the spot where he stood upon the hearth, studying her so leisurely, when a tap comes at the door. Who is it? Mrs. Rouncewell. What has brought Mrs. Rouncewell to town so unexpectedly? Chapel, my lady. Sad chapel. Oh, my lady, may I beg a word with you? What new occurrence is it that makes this tranquil old woman tremble so? Far happier than her lady, as her lady has often thought, why does she falter in this manner and look at her with such strange mistrust? What is the matter? Sit down and take your breath. Oh, my lady, my lady, I have found my son, my youngest, who went away for a soldier so long ago, and he's in prison. For debt? Oh, no, my lady. I would have paid any debt, and joyful. For what is he in prison, then? Charged with a murder, my lady, of which he is as innocent as, as I am, accused of the murder of Mr. Tulkinghorn. What does she mean by this look and this imploring gesture? Why does she come so close? What is the letter that she holds? 
Lady Dedlock, my dear lady, my good lady, my kind lady, you must have a heart to feel for me. You must have a heart to forgive me. I was in this family before you were born. I am devoted to it. But think of my dear son, wrongfully accused. I do not accuse him. No, my lady, no. But others do. And he is in prison and in danger. Oh, Lady Dedlock, if you can say but a word to help to clear him, say it. What delusion can this be? What power does she suppose is in the person she petitions to avert this unjust suspicion, if it be unjust? Her lady's handsome eyes regard her with astonishment, almost with fear. My lady, I came away last night from Chesney Wold to find my son in my old age, and the step upon the ghost's walk was so constant and so solemn that I never heard the like in all these years. Night after night, as it is fallen dark, the sound has echoed through your rooms. But last night, it was the awfulest, and as it fell dark last night, my lady, I got this letter. What letter is it? Hush! Hush! The housekeeper looks round and answers in a frightened whisper, My lady, I have not breathed a word of it. I don't believe what's written in it. I know it can't be true. I am sure and certain that it is not true. But my son is in danger, and you must have a heart to pity me. If you know of anything that is not known to others, if you have any suspicion, if you have any clue at all, and any reason for keeping it in your own breast, oh, my dear lady, think of me, and conquer that reason, and let it be known. This is the most I consider possible. I know you are not a hard lady, but you go your own way always without help, and you are not familiar with your friends and all who admire you, and all do, as a beautiful and elegant lady, know you to be one far away from themselves who can't be approached close. My lady, you may have some proud or angry reasons for disdaining to utter something that you know. If so, pray, oh, pray, think of a faithful servant whose whole life has been passed in this family which she dearly loves, and relent and help to clear my son. My lady, my good lady the old housekeeper pleads with genuine simplicity i am so humble in my place and you are by nature so high and distant that you may not think what i feel for my child but i feel so much that i have come here to make so bold as to beg and pray you not to be scornful of us if you can do us any right or justice at this fearful time Lady Dedlock raises her without one word, until she takes the letter from her hand. "'Am I to read this?' "'When I am gone, my lady, if you please, and then remembering the most that I consider possible.' "'I know of nothing I can do. I know of nothing I reserve that can affect your son. I have never accused him.' "'My lady,' you may pity him the more under a false accusation after reading the letter the old housekeeper leaves her with the letter in her hand 
In truth, she is not a hard lady, naturally, and the time has been when the sight of the venerable figure suing to her with such strong earnestness would have moved her to great compassion. But so long accustomed to suppress emotion and keep down reality, so long schooled for her own purposes in that destructive school which shuts up the natural feelings of the heart like flies in amber, and spreads one uniform and dreary gloss over the good and bad, the feeling and the unfeeling, the sensible and the senseless, she had subdued even her wonder until now. She opens the letter, spread out upon the paper as a printed account, of the discovery of the body as it lay face downward on the floor, shot through the heart, and underneath is written her own name, with the word murderous attached. It falls out of her hand. How long it may have lain upon the ground she knows not, but it lies where it fell, when a servant stands before her, announcing the young man of the name of Guppy. The words have probably been repeated several times, for they are ringing in her head before she begins to understand them. Let him come in. He comes in. Holding the letter in her hand, which she has taken from the floor, she tries to collect her thoughts. In the eyes of Mr. Guppy, she is the same Lady Dedlock, holding the same prepared, proud, chilling state. "'Your ladyship may not be at first disposed to excuse this visit from one who has ever been welcome to your ladyship,' which he don't complain of, for he is bound to confess that there never has been any particular reason on the face of things why he should be. "'But I hope, when I mention my motives to your ladyship, you will not find fault with me,' says Mr. Guppy. "'Do so.' "'Thank you, your ladyship.' "'I ought first to explain to your ladyship,' Mr. Guppy sits on the edge of a chair, and puts his hat on the carpet at his feet, "'that Miss Summerson, whose image, as I formerly mentioned to your ladyship, was at one period of my life imprinted on my heart, until erased by circumstances over which I had no control, communicated to me, after I had the pleasure of waiting on your ladyship last, that she particularly wished me to take no steps whatever, in any manner at all, relating to her and Miss Summerson's wishes being to me a law, except as connected with circumstances over which I have no control, I consequently never expected to have the distinguished honour of waiting on your ladyship again. And yet he is here now, Lady Dedlock moodily reminds him. And yet I am here now, Mr. Guppy admits, my object being to communicate to your ladyship, under the seal of confidence, why I am here. He cannot do so, she tells him, too plainly or too briefly. "'Nor can I,' Mr. Guppy returns with a sense of injury upon him, "'to particularly request your ladyship to take particular notice that it's no personal affair of mine that brings me here. I have no interested views of my own to serve in coming here. If it was not for my promise to Miss Summerson, and my keeping of it sacred, I, in point of fact, shouldn't have darkened these doors again, but should have seen em further first. Mr. Guppy considers this a favourable moment for sticking up his hair with both hands. "'Your ladyship will remember, when I mention it, that the last time I was here, I ran against a party, very eminent in our profession, and whose loss we all deplore. That party certainly did from that time apply himself to cutting in against me in a way that I will call sharp practice, and did make it, at every turn and point, extremely difficult for me to be sure that I hadn't inadvertently led up to something contrary to Miss Summerson's wishes. 
Self-praise is no recommendation, but I may say for myself that I am not so bad a man of business neither. Lady Dedlock looks at him in stern inquiry. Mr. Guppy immediately withdraws his eyes from her face, and looks anywhere else. "'Indeed, it has been made so hard,' he goes on, "'to have any idea what that party was up to, in combination with others, that until the loss, which we all deplore, I was gravelled. An expression which your ladyship, moving in the higher circles, will be so good as to consider tantamount to knocked over.' "'Small, likewise, a name by which I refer to another party, a friend of mine that your ladyship is not acquainted with, got to be so close and double-faced that at times it wasn't easy to keep one's hands off his head. However, what with the exertion of my humble abilities, and what with the help of a mutual friend by the name of Mr. Tony Weevil, who is of a high aristocratic turn, and has your ladyship's portrait always hanging up in his room—' I have now reasons for an apprehension as to which I come to put your ladyship upon your guard. First, will your ladyship allow me to ask you whether you have had any strange visitors this morning? I don't mean fashionable visitors, but such visitors, for instance, as Miss Barbary's old servant, or as a person without the use of his lower extremities, carried upstairs similarly to a guy. No. "'Then I assure your ladyship that such visitors have been here, and have been received here, because I saw them at the door, and waited at the corner of the square till they came out, and took off an hour's turn afterwards to avoid them.' "'What have I to do with that, or what have you? I do not understand you. What do you mean?' "'Your ladyship, I come to put you on your guard. There may be no occasion for it. "'Very well. Then I have only done my best to keep my promise to Miss Summerson. "'I strongly suspect, from what Small has dropped, and from what we have corkscrewed out of him, "'that those letters I was to have brought to your ladyship were not destroyed when I supposed they were. "'That if there was anything to be blown upon, it is blown upon. "'That the visitors I have alluded to have been here this morning to make money of it, "'and that the money is made or making.' Mr. Guppy picks up his hat and rises. "'Your ladyship, you know best whether there's anything in what I say, or whether there's nothing. Something, or nothing, I have acted up to Miss Summerson's wishes in letting things alone, and in undoing what I had begun to do as far as possible. That's sufficient for me. In case I should be taking a liberty in putting your ladyship on your guard, when there's no necessity for it, you will endeavour—' I should hope, to outlive my presumption, and I shall endeavour to outlive your disapprobation. I now take my farewell of your ladyship, and assure you that there's no danger of your ever being waited on by me again." She scarcely acknowledges these parting words by any look, but when he has been gone a little while, she rings her bell. "'Where is Sir Leicester?' Mercury reports that he is at present shut up in the library alone. "'Has Sir Leicester had any visitors this morning?' "'Several. On business. Mercury proceeds to a description of them, which has been anticipated by Mr. Guppy. Enough. He may go. So. All is broken down. Her name is in these many mouths. Her husband knows his wrongs. 
her shame will be published, may be spreading while she thinks about it, and in addition to the thunderbolt, so long foreseen by her, so unforeseen by him, she is denounced by an invisible accuser as the murderess of her enemy. Her enemy he was, and she has often, often, often wished him dead. Her enemy he is, even in his grave. This dreadful accusation comes upon her like a new torment at his lifeless hand. And when she recalls how she was secretly at his door that night, and how she may be represented to have sent her favourite girl away so soon before merely to release herself from observation, she shudders as if the hangman's hands were at her neck. She has thrown herself upon the floor and lies with her hair all wildly scattered and her face buried in the cushions of a couch. She rises up, hurries to and fro, flings herself down again and rocks and moans. The horror that is upon her is unutterable. If she really were the murderess, it could hardly be, for the moment, more intense. For as her murderous perspective, before the doing of the deed, however subtle the precautions for its commission, would have been closed up by a gigantic dilatation of the hateful figure, preventing her from seeing any consequences beyond it, and as those consequences would have rushed in, in an unimagined flood, the moment the figure was laid low, which always happens when a murder is done, so now she sees that when he used to be on the watch before her, and she used to think, if some mortal stroke would but fall on this old man, and take him from my way, it was but wishing that all he held against her in his hand might be flung to the winds, and chance sown in many places. So, too, with the wicked relief that she has felt in his death. What was his death, but the keystone of a gloomy arch removed, and now the arch begins to fall in a thousand fragments, each crushing and mangling piecemeal. Thus a terrible impression steals upon and overshadows her, that from this pursuer, living or dead, obdurate and imperturbable before her in his well-remembered shape, or not more obdurate and imperturbable in his coffin-bed, there is no escape but in death. Hunted, she flies. The complication of her shame, her dread, remorse, and misery overwhelms her at its height, and even her strength of self-reliance is overturned and whirled away like a leaf before a mighty wind. She hurriedly addresses these lines to her husband, seals, and leaves them on her table. If I am sought for, or accused of, his murder, believe that I am wholly innocent. Believe no other good of me, for I am innocent of nothing else that you have heard, or will hear, laid to my charge. He prepared me, on that fatal night, for his disclosure of my guilt to you. After he had left me, I went out on pretense of walking in the garden where I sometimes walk, but really to follow him, and make one last petition, that he would not protract the dreadful suspense on which I have been racked by him. You do not know how long, but would mercifully strike next morning. I found his house dark and silent. I rang twice at his door, but there was no reply, and I came home. I have no home left. I will encumber you no more. May you, in your just resentment, be able to forget the unworthy woman on whom you have wasted a most generous devotion, who avoids you only with a deeper shame than that with which she hurries from herself, and who writes this last adieu. She veils and dresses quickly, leaves all her jewels and her money, listens, 
goes downstairs at a moment when the hall is empty, opens and shuts the great door, flutters away in the shrill, frosty wind. End of chapter 55